The Football Pod on OTB Sports. Do you still listen to the Football Pod or is that like texting your ex? Absolutely. As I often said, I'm jealous that uh, I don't know who's so good, the little whore. <laughs> the Football Pod is available every Tuesday exclusively on the OTB Sports app. OTB AM. With Gillette, get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor. With exfoliating bar. It's half past seven. You're welcome along to Thursday's OTBAM. Owen and Shane with you right the way through until 10 o'clock this morning. We're going to have Ronan O'Gara with us very shortly for a look ahead to Ireland's tour to New Zealand. We're also going to have Jenny Claffey in studio to look ahead to Wimbledon. Harriet Pryor is going to chat Liverpool with us. And then there's also a Formula One check-in with Chris Medland before we wrap up. Uh, there's been plenty of All-Ireland Football quarterfinals build-up across all our programmes over the last couple of days. We did a load on OTBAM yesterday, but we will have a little bit more today Tommy Rooney of Football Pod fame will be with us a little bit later on to go through some of the key matchups in this weekend's games at Croke Park so plenty coming up this morning and we'd love to hear from you you can drop us a comment on the YouTube stream you can tweet us at Off The Ball Shane Hannan is beaming in live from Monaghan Shane how are you getting on? Very good morning Owen how are things? Yeah very well you made a trip up to Derry last night to look at uh, the, the Guinness Zero Zero Road Show uh, with a uh, off the ball and a host of of uh, big names looking ahead to the big game this weekend. Yeah, quality nights crack up in Mahara, Owen. Um, lovely drive up as well. Nice and scenic from Monaghan. Only about an hour and, hour and 20, hour and 25 from, from the house here in Monaghan town. But um, as soon as you enter into, uh, into County Derry, you can see and feel the atmosphere and the vibe of the Ulster champions. Like you have the, the usual crack and it's probably something to do with the, the fact that we have the kind of novel pairing, especially on one side of the draw. Um, you know, to see the bunting and the, the literally like uh, not exaggerating is to see a lot of kids running around wearing the jerseys. Obviously, there's a bit of an atmosphere in the in the uh, county ahead of ahead of Saturday, and really, there's an air of confidence, Owen, as well. Because I mean, you couldn't have picked a nicer draw for Derry, with all respect to Clare, and also with the knowledge that, to be honest, Clare watching that draw as well probably would have wanted Derry themselves mm. so it, uh, it's kind of a tantalising prospect on Saturday two teams that uh, that really wanted each other yeah it's a, it's a great draw like is that, is that the sense that you get from people last night and, and those people who were actually on the show that you know Derry are strong favourites for Saturday or is the lack of success over the last couple of years is that enough of a reason for them to be uber cautious before Saturday like, like Tony Scullion was talking and we had Tony Scullion and uh, Enda Gormley from the 1993 vintage and you know, that All-Ireland win uh, what 29 years ago and and like they were referencing the fact that, that Rory Gallagher in the build-ups of this match you know has been confident he was asked about the fact that Derry have this favourites tag ahead of the Clare match on Saturday uh, and he said yeah we are favourites of course we're favourites and we should own that 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 favourites tag which is a nice attitude because ordinarily heading into these matches you'll get GA managers playing down things and saying ah no sure Yara sure look well you're a Kerry man and you know all about this but Rory is doing the opposite you know he's really he's not playing up their chances but he's certainly not playing them down either um, and look Tony Scullion said it's a case of you look at counties like Kerry and if Kerry don't win the All-Ireland this year that's seen as a failure uh, but Tony Scullion's point was if Derry don't get the chance to go up that road to Dublin uh, to prepare for an All-Ireland semi-final at least, then this year will, have be, cons- will be considered a failure. And, and the Anglo-Celt will, will be tarnished somewhat because to go the hard route and listen, to beat Tyrone Monaghan and Donegal in your, in your Ulster Championship games and win the Ulster that way uh, is the most difficult route to do it. So, you know, then if they go up to Croke Park and lose a quarter-final against Clare, it, it certainly does put a tarnish on, on their year. Um 
but like there's there's definitely an air of confidence. There's there's an air of nervousness as well because because of this favourites tag. But I mean, to get some of those stories Owen from uh, from nineteen ninety three and, and look, a lot of the all of these stories would be across the off the ball social channels as podcast and YouTube across today and tomorrow. Eddie Brennan as well. Uh, great feature interview with, with Eddie and, and Joe Malloy and Maura Trassa as well, talking about the the, the Shefflin Cody relationship and, and Eddie's own managerial ambitions now from from beyond here. I know he was he was in charge of Leash and he was uh, involved with Kula as well. But some of these ninety three stories, uh, Owen. I mean, talking talking Brawley, talking like I I often thought about the fact that Joe Brawley often spoke about the the feeling after winning that All Ireland ninety three, sitting in the Cat in the Cage pub in, in Drumcondra. And feeling anticlimactic that is this all there is, you know, all that hype and build up for an All Ireland. And Tony Scully and Andy Gormley just threw that out the window last night and said, none of the rest of the Derry players, certainly those two lads last night, didn't agree. And it was everything they could have hoped for and more. You know, putting the Tony Scully in got very emotional talking about, you know, winning the Sam Maguire and leaving it on his on his father's on his father's knee at home. Um, you know, taking it back to your home village and your home club. So uh, it really whetted the appetite ahead of this weekend. Yeah, there's a, a, a phenomenal book that was written a couple of years ago, The Boys of 93. It's very, you could get it read in, in a day if, if you wanted to. And it just charts the incredible soap opera that occurs, not only in the build-up to that 93 All-Ireland, but everything that happened afterwards. And like the legend that is Eamon Coleman, like, I mean, there were no statuses for legends, it seemed, in Derry, even after winning an All-Ireland in, in 1993. Some of the, the politicking that went on in the aftermath of that, it's, it's a fascinating county, a fascinating place. And that success is, is, was one of the great stories, just one of the great eras, I think, for Gaelic games in general. In both codes, like the 90s, when you go back to it, like the, the, the hurling obviously is rightfully lauded during those few years as unpredictable and, and kind of a, a revolutionary time for the sport and unpredictable football was very much the same and the rise of the Ulster teams was something that was going to send ripples into the 2000s as well so I'm really looking forward to listening back to some of that chain uh, I'm glad it's uh, it all went well I presume as a Monaghan man though you're kind of looking around this weekend and thinking Jesus if we had got through the front door in, in Ulster granted that's a very hard thing to do every single year but you must be thinking Jesus if we got through the front door we'd be looking at uh, at a fairly good opportunity to do something historic this season yeah, and I think look if Monaghan had got over the the the, the task of 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 Derry in, in that semi final in the athletic rounds, you'd have been looking at an Ulster final against Donegal, and Donegal for Monaghan don't instill as much fear as say a Tyrone do. Um, like and the way Donegal performed in that final as well. I mean, courage is a word often used in Gaelic football and bandied around. And Brendan Devenny used it last night and spoke about how Donegal needed to play with more courage uh, and they didn't in that final. So yeah, it's definitely a, it's definitely a what if kind of championship for, for, for a team like Monaghan, especially when you see the draw open up. But like as someone, like, it, when you're a neutral left now in the, in the, uh, the last eight, watching these matches and look, I'm going to be there on Sunday for the, for that double header, uh, wearing my Galway jersey, it has to be, it has to be said as well. I'm mm-hmm. nailing my colors to the mask. Like I was born in County Armagh, Owen, but my dad and my entire family are, are like one half of my family are all Galway people from down there in uh, in Dunmore and North Galway. So I'll uh, be nailing my colours to the mast uh, on on Sunday and for the remainder of the championship. But it like to see that side of the draw: Armagh, Galway, Clare, and Derry. Uh, one of those teams being in, the, in an All Ireland final. It adds a bit more more interest, I think, to yeah. the championship. Like all of a sudden, you know, we all are looking forward to this potential. And look, with respect to Mayo and Cork. This potential and probable Kerry Dublin All Ireland semi final. It's kind of what we, we're gearing up towards, uh, and realistically, it'll be the first test the Dubs certainly have got. 
Uh, I expect him to be have too much for Cork this weekend. Kerry will at least have you know been a, been a bit challenged. You would imagine by by Mayo. You know, obviously that league final aside, but Mayo were missing a number of quality players, probably four or five of their starting fifteen um, for that game. So it's set up so so nicely. I, like I can't really call. I can't. Probably the only game you can't call with certainty is the Galway Armagh match. Like Derry went down to to Ennis in the league. Say what you want about the league, but they beat them quite handily down that down, down that day in uh, in Cusick Park. Probably means nothing uh, after heading into this weekend. The big question, Owen, is: Would you rather be in Derry's position, having won a hard Ulster championship, but had the bit of time in between, or would you rather be the battle hardened Clare, having played very recently and in Croke Park as well? It's if it, you know, it's six, probably six of one half dozen of the other, and it will mean nothing come throw in on Saturday at three forty five. But it's certainly going to be a factor. Yeah, no, for sure. It's it's really interesting that this weekend, like, and even to kind of like bring it back to the to the nineties. I think the very optimistic forecast at the start of this year would have been that Gaelic football was about to go on this unpredictable journey. We may end up coming out of this weekend with a situation where Dublin have absolutely creamed Cork and Kerry look very good against Mayo, and we start to think that maybe that won't be the case. But maybe there is a, a, an alternate universe where in a couple of weeks' time we are looking at something really special where somebody on that other side of the jaw does go all the way, does go and lift Sam Maguire and maybe we are on the, the cusp of, of something unpredictable over the next little while. I do think that's quite optimistic from a neutral standpoint. Maybe it'll be Kerry Dublin, maybe Mayo, Tyrone might come back over the next couple of years and maybe that'll just be it sewn up. But I do think that other side, the other side of the jaw, does like give a lot of hope for, for the optimist in, in Gaelic football uh, this weekend especially. And you're right about Galway Armagh. Like I think it's very, very hard to just get a, a, any sort of definition on, on who will win this because you don't even have a league game to go by this year. Mm-hmm. You don't have a league game to go by last year. Like there is just no kind of nothing really to cling on to when, when you're trying to say who is definitely going to win this game. But the arguments that are being made for one side or the other are, are pretty compelling. Uh, we are going to get you to, to predict these though. Um, so do you want to do you want to start with that one, Shane, or, or, or where do you want to go with your quarterfinal predictions? <sighs> Right, let's we'll start in order, I suppose, with Claire Derry. Um, like, <laughs> I'm going to try and leave my Armagh Galway prediction to the end. Uh, it's too hard to predict. Like, I, I almost feel, and you've mentioned it there, Owen. Like, there is something exciting happening in Ulster football at the minute. Um, akin to that early '90s, like the stories last night from like the lads talking about Eamon Coleman not even wanting to take the job originally in Derry. You know, he's taken over a Derry team that won an Ulster in '87, but then weren't achieving much thereafter. Ulster and Connacht teams were a laughing stock, really, as soon as they left the province. I mean, it was all, it was all, uh, you know, Kerry plus the Leinster teams, essentially. Um, but then what, what Down and Down in 91 and 94, Donegal in 92 and Derry in 93 did was, was change everything. And I feel like this Derry and Armagh team of, of, of current are changing things massively in Ulster. And I would not be surprised whatsoever if, uh, if one of those went all the way this year. Um, like Derry, Derry Clare, I just think Derry will have too much for Clare. Um, like I know Clare have played in Croke Park quite recently, but I mean, that's, you know, and Colin Collins, I think he gets the credit. It's not like an undeserved uh, thing, an unsung thing. Colin Collins rightly so gets the credit for keeping this group of players together, for keeping them in Division 2 as a solid Division 2 team year on year, which is not easy. Uh, but I just think, uh, having seen this Derry team this year, I mean, to see the likes of Chrissy McCaig and Brandon Rogers coming up from the back, you have Shane McGuigan up front, you know, ripping shreds into teams as well. Um, I just think that Derry team are are, are just excel across the pitch. Um, I expect them to win by probably four or five, uh, I have to say, on Saturday. Like, 
the second game on Saturday, hard to see past the dubs. Like it was mentioned last night at the road show in Mahara as well. Dublin haven't really been tested, but any team that puts what five seventeen on Kildare in a Leinster final, I mean, that's that's pretty intimidating for any team that comes up against them. Um, like Tony Scullion referenced the fact that Stephen Cluxon's not involved this year as being a massive factor, and we'll get to see just how big a factor that is when they when they you know probably meet Kerry in a in a semi final. But you'd imagine they'd have too much for Cork. Free shot for Cork, don't get me wrong. Um, and it's all bonus territory for them if they if they manage to win. Uh, but I just can't see it. So the dubs for that one on Saturday. Uh, I'll start with Kerry Mayo, like for Sunday. It's just, it's hard to know how this game is going to play out. David Clifford's fitness is going to be massive. Uh, you probably know more than me in terms of the talk in, in, in the county this week. And I know Jack O'Connor, he didn't play it down, but he said he's back involved in training. Um didn't elaborate exactly he how much a massive, He created a much bigger cloud than already existed around us. <laughs> yeah, he said he said nothing without like essentially, but he's left us all wondering how fit is he? Um, and like great conversations last night at this roadshow as well, talking about how do you mark David Clifford, regardless of whether he's fully fit or not. Like we saw what Padraig O'Hara tried to do. The lad's making the point last night. You cannot you know, have a one-on-one situation against David Clifford. You can't stand behind him either. Either A lot of defenders tend to do that and let him get the ball and trust themselves that they'll be able to stop him. You have to stand in front of, of Clifford, play positive, um, and just not try your best to not let him get the ball. Because once the ball is in his hand, half the damage is done. Um, so we'll see how fit he is. But uh, that that's going to be a massive factor. We know that Mayo have, you know, Oshin Mullen back that wasn't there for the league final. Killian O'Connor only had a kind of a cameo role that day. Ryan O'Donoghue's fitness remains to be seen whether he'll make it for Mayo, probably unlikely. Um, but I just think this is Kerry's. Like, if Kerry don't win the All Ireland this year, there'd be such disappointment. I know down down below where 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 you're from, Owen, and I just don't. Oh, no, everybody'll get over it very quickly. Yeah, that that's the Kerry way. Get over it very quick. Don't be any talk about it in the pubs of Killarney and Dingle afterwards. I'm sure. Um, but like, it, it's 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 just there for the taking for 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 Kerry this Mayo team. Like I I watched them against Monaghan and I watched them against Kildare, and while they got over the line against two pretty decent teams, you know, Division One teams last year, they didn't impress me massively. Mayo. Now the most Mayo thing in the world would be to go out and win this game, and and I think Enda Gormley it was that or Brendan Devenny made the point last night that probably the best thing that could happen for Mayo is for them to be six or seven points down, you know, 10 minutes into the second half to get a couple of points in a row, get the crowd behind them. And that's the situation in the scenario in which Mayo tend to excel. Uh, and you never know what can happen from there. You know, leading from the front maybe isn't, isn't what they do best, but uh, if they're involved in a tight game and the crowd get behind them, who knows what could happen? But I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm sticking my, my colours with, with Kerry for that one. Um, and then Galway Armagh, like, <laughs> Like, what do you do with Rain O'Neill? Like, Finian O'Leary, I don't know if, if he picks him up. I don't know who picks Rain O'Neill up, but this expansive pitch in Croke Park, and we saw the damage that Rain O'Neill did against the Dubs in Croke Park earlier this year. Like, they will just have plans. Kieran Donahue has added a serious amount to that Armagh backroom team in terms of their attacking prowess. We already know they have attacking prowess, but lumping those balls in, like we saw in the first the first kick um, into Rory, Rory Grugan in that, in that Ulster final. They'll have other things up their sleeve, this Armagh team. You can bet. They're, they're very industrious. Uh, they're entrepreneurial. Like Kieran McGinney will have a lot of things planned for this Galway team. The thing is, though, Galway are coming in under the shadows. Like I remember my dad talking about the 1998 All-Ireland final against Kildare 
Uh, all of the build-up was was surrounding Kildare and them being favourites. Mick Dwyer's team being hard to beat, but the headlines in the paper were in the papers were Galway were waiting in the long grass, as we all remember, and and not quite long grass, but certainly the grass hasn't been cut for a couple of weeks. I would say <laughs> for Galway this time, like they they won a Connacht championship in a tough fashion. Like when you beat Mayo and beat Ross Common, you deserve to it to be to to be Connacht champions. But then again, we don't really know where they're at because they haven't played. Um, so it yeah. remains to be seen how they're going in training. I'm going to get off the fence. Uh, my arse is hurting from all these, uh, the city on the fence. But <sighs> could be extra time. Galway by one. Galway by one. You're, you're sticking with uh, your... Your dad would just be would be ashamed of you if you went anywhere other than uh, Galway for that. I think it's a really Family good first. point, though, about uh, the, the length of the grass that Galway might be currently situated in and I think there is a recency bias around our analysis sometimes with these games because you know we, we've seen teams come through the back door in spectacular fashion and Armagh are a perfect example of that that is tattooed in our brains right now that Armagh performance in the last round of the qualifiers and we're like wow how can anybody beat them and we sometimes forget about the performances that were put in at the provincial finals now granted it's not just recency bias there is a, re- a very real argument to be made that two weeks one, one weekend off is a perfect run into an All-Ireland quarterfinal and that's why you might be able to back against the provincial winners but there were some incredibly impressive showings in, in some of those provincial finals as well Derry in particular and I think we're maybe forgetting about it just a, just a tad and I think that's natural because uh, the round two of the qualifiers was was so dramatic especially when it came to those those Mayo and Armagh matches so yeah it's going to be a, a really interesting um, weekend Fergus Keogh asks the question is there a worry the final will be an embarrassing 20-point affair? I think that all depends on who gets to the final. I think if Derry are on one side of the, of the final, I, I can't see Derry being beaten by 20 points mm. by anybody. I can't see Galway getting beaten by 20 points by anybody in this era. I mean, it, it, like what I'm basing it on is because of the last time they went up against uh, Dublin in Croke Park in 2018. It, it wasn't embarrassing, but they were beaten well. And I know they missed a, a first-half penalty, didn't they, that day? But I think that there's... Galway have shown over the last couple of months that they've taken all those experiences from 2017, 18 onwards and probably built on it and I think they're a better team than them and then that leaves Armagh and Clare and if Clare get to the final and they've got over two huge games that can, maybe they would be the ones who would be susceptible to, to taking a bit of a, a whipping and Armagh put in with, with Derry as well so I don't think so but again I think maybe I'm looking at this in a very glass half full way Dublin could get to a final and, and destroy anybody uh, if Mayo get to the final I don't think they'll destroy anybody in the final because uh, they'll always try and do it the hard way so <laughs> I don't think so but who knows Dublin Kerry potentially could um, could uh, potentially justify that question. And Comco Productions asks, do Derry have the forwards to kick scores in crunch time in the biggest game of the year? And I guess we're going to find out. And I guess similar questions are being asked of Mayo at the moment about uh, do they have the forwards to kick scores in crunch time? The good news for Derry and for Mayo is that when backs score points, they count the same as when forwards score points. I'm not sure if you knew that. So that will definitely hold them in good stead going into this weekend. Just to tell you, it is uh, 7.49. You're with us here on OTBAM. It's brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Let's briefly tell you what's coming up this morning. Ronan O'Gara on standby. We'll get to him in just a second. Jenny Claffey will be joining us in studio. She's a former tennis pro who's going to look ahead to Wimbledon and chat a little bit about her career as well. The football pod and uh, Tommy Rooney coming your way at 20 to 9 as we go through the matchups for this weekend's All-Ireland Football quarterfinals. Harriet Pryor will pay tribute to Sadio Mane's Liverpool career and more at 10 to 9. Chris Medland will be chatting Formula One. We've got a break week this week before Silverstone and then a Tom O'Reardon tribute coming your way 
at half past nine. But at uh, seven fifty this morning, it's time to check in with La Rochelle head coach Ronan O'Gara. Ronan, how are you getting on? Oh, and how you doing? Great, hi Shane. A uh, couple of weeks now since we've last been chatting. I think it was the build-up to the top 14 quarter-final. Uh, a narrow enough defeat to Toulouse, 33 points to 28 on the day. Uh, was your sense that your tails were up going into that game? Or in hindsight, was it a sense that it's actually quite difficult to, to get players to the correct level after such an amazing result a few weeks previous? Um, no, I think you'd have to be disappointed with the way the top 14... Uh, away game went um, to Toulouse but um, the damage is probably done in, in in our league form throughout the season I think the key takeaway from this season would be uh, you look who's in the final it's Cast and it's Montpellier Cast finished first Montpellier finished second uh, and having that actual week off just gives you a huge advantage compared to the other teams because you essentially get a week to freshen up and uh, the French teams have obviously played a difficult quarter-final the, the week previously which you mean no matter how you try to decipher it, it does have an impact uh, on freshness uh, especially if you're going 13 weeks in a row and then other I suppose French teams some of them play the top 14 uh, like their lives depending on and a few teams probably have a go at both competitions be very interested in like a, this if we could invent like a, a Tri Nations esque tournament for yourselves, Toulouse and Leinster, and see who would actually come out on top of that with, with everybody playing each other week in week out. Because it seems that there is like just this incredible sequence of results and incredible games that have come up between those three teams, which obviously sit near the summit of European rugby right now. Yeah, it would be it because it's um, they take a life of their own. You look at mm. how Leinster, I suppose, uh, completely. Uh, destroyed Toulouse in the Aviva Sea of Blue on a fast surface, uh, but I suppose the, you mean the asterisk around that is that they had 100 minutes in the in the legs from the previous Saturday. They had a week's travel, uh, and Leinster were probably on fire that day um, in Marseille. It's a one-off game when we play Leinster. Uh, it's probably more commanding performance by us shall I say at home in the semi-final of the year previously when it was a soulless ground with no supporters so it's it's hard to kind of judge in that but in terms of rugby content we probably um, um, physically had a little bit more dominance in that game than we would have in the final I would think uh, and then you look what Toulouse do to La Rochelle there's no doubt about it it's a, it's a bogey team uh, for us, the scoreline really flatters us. Thirty-three, twenty-eight. We weren't in the game, but I think what should be probably remarked upon is that the boys never, I suppose, uh, threw in the towel. They fought in the end and, and coming up five points short. We probably had preview that we, if we stay with them, um, we win the game. But if you go give them a nineteen-point lead, it's too. It, too much because I think we are probably fitter than them uh, but at home um, they were hurting I suppose from their exit and um, that's that's what happens in these big games Are you on holidays at the moment Ronan or is that just the back garden? <laughs> <laughs> You're trying not to break a smile I can see you on, on Skype um, I'm, uh, I'm on holidays I wish it was my back garden <laughs> Where, Whereabouts are you? I'm in a pizza. First oh, nice. time ever. 
Oh, nice. What's that like? Yeah, yeah. So uh, there's obviously two sides to the island, uh, and um, the family side of it is is to be recommended. It's beautiful, beautiful. But, but you're on the other side, obviously. <laughs> no, <Nah. laughs> nah, nah. I um, I'm good at winging it, but th- that would be. Uh, taking it to a whole new level if I was to perform this morning and not slur my words if I was on the other side so uh, no I'm concentrated and um, uh, just taking a bit of time out recharge the batteries and go back at it um, the end of July Are you thinking about the season that just went by at at times like this Ronan are you trying to kind of like soak in what what happened in in the, the European campaign in particular, or do you just try and plug out completely? Because I guess it's a it's it's like this balance. You know, sports people always say, you know, we don't appreciate the great moments enough, and uh, I guess that there's never you know time uh, essentially to to try and yeah. soak it all in. I think when I watched for the first time when I watched Leicester win the Premiership, it dawned on on me, I suppose, what La Rochelle had achieved. Uh, you look at the I suppose the joy Leicester got from the domestic competition. Uh, that was also at European Cup stage. I just think it's it's a fairy tale story in the fact that um, you know you, you you win a European Cup with the last play of the game. Uh, it's very very rare that happens, and and I suppose I was head of a coaching team that that made that happen, uh, and that's I think. Uh, feeling you get for five minutes after the kick, after the final whistle, is very, very powerful, and, and it makes the kind of ten years of questioning why you're doing this and uh, why you want to do this. It just all comes together, and that moment is very, very powerful when you can share it with your family, your brothers. Um, it was amazing, Marseille, the soccer stadium. It's uh, a mythical stadium, and. Um, I suppose that um, memory you now is ingrained, but you got to move on. It's 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 next game now, but you'd be foolish not to uh, not to be grateful and not to uh, reflect upon that. And then the flip side of that is, how can you go from that to driving on to to having a an, an attack on uh, on the domestic competition as well? I guess then the the contrast between that and and a player. And somebody who would be playing test rugby is that at this point of the year, regardless of all the success that you might have had during the season, is that you're thinking straight away summer tour. If you're an Ireland player right now, even if you've won silverware, you're thinking, right, OK, the All Blacks are next up. And, and maybe as a player, as I say, you just have that. You just don't have any time to kind of like uh, bask in the glory of what you might have achieved because it's constantly on to the next thing in this rugby calendar. Yeah, it is. And I would say um, for the first time in a long while, um, there's a bite to the summer tour that may not have been considering, I suppose, the form of uh, the provinces in terms of uh, Ulster, probably a lot more consistent in 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 their performances. Munster underperforming. Leinster uh, would be disappointed with how I suppose the end of their season is. Connacht producing a lot of quality players. You mix that into the to the Irish pot. And, and you're going to New Zealand. The one thing um, that will be exposed in in New Zealand will be a, a, a fragile mentality. So um, I suppose the top two inches are going to be absolutely um, crucial for, for, for the Irish team uh, to, I suppose, uh, optimise what they want 
uh, over for the next month because looking from afar, you would think that it's probably this is the start of the World Cup. Mm. It has shades of um, England going to, I think, New Zealand in, in 2002 when they kind of under Woodward, when they uh, obviously identified that they had to win a test away from home before they were going to go on to win a World Cup. So, um, you know, I mean, obviously Ireland are, are, are a little bit uh, behind that in terms of, you know, the superpowers at the minute probably are um, France, South Africa. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I think you always have to respect New Zealand because they're... Um, very good at um, peaking for World Cups. Um, so, from Ireland's point of view, it's it's a tour uh, uh, packed with opportunity for everyone on it at different stages of their career. Because I think if you perform in New Zealand, you get an awful lot of credit uh, and respect because there's no uncertainty in terms of is this player capable of thriving under the uh, cauldron of high-pressure test rugby, you, you will find out in in the next five games. Ronan, like you referenced uh, 2002 there, and like I know probably heading into that year, New Zealand were, were the a dominant force as well. 97 years, I think, was the last time Ireland had beaten them, uh, for one thing. Like, I remember reading different places that, uh, you know, even since then, and it's hard to believe it's 20 years on, about, you know, yourself coming up against Jonah Lomu in that match. And, and interestingly as well, like I know that was the, especially the game in Dunedin, the 15-6 defeat. I remember you talking about the, the, the yellow ball that was used in that game. And sometimes these are the small margins that can be, you know, off-putting for a kicker like yourself on a day like that. And I think you talked about sheets of ice as well on the ball that, that were kind of putting you off. Like, what are your memories of, of that particular game and, and that particular day in Dunedin? Well, what strikes me straight away from um, really re- listening to your commentary is that that, that was that's a a, a great uh, bunch of weak excuses <laughs> in terms of <laughs> there was pizza of ice on the ball. It was a yellow ball known as a pig, but uh, you know what I mean. What do they say about a bad a bad tools man? Isn't it? Or a bad craftsman blames blames his tools. So like that jumps out at me straight away. So I need to correct that straight away and the fact that it was opportunity but that's another example of not being able to handle the pressure that's those games were there to to be won but whatever stage of my mental development I wasn't able to get us over the line um, and that happens but I think you learn from it and you become better and then hopefully three years later you probably found the benefit of succumbing on that tour to have a better result at the end of the day Um but I think for people that probably haven't travelled to New Zealand, it's very, very different uh, mentality to touring anywhere else. Maybe South Africa is similar, um, but they eat, sleep and drink rugby in New Zealand and everyone has um, has an opinion on the game. And their greatest strength is that every boy and girl wants to be uh, a black fern or an all black. That's... That's the dream, you know. There's none of this. I want to play uh, football for Dublin or for Kerry, or I want to play soccer for Ireland, or wouldn't mind being a tennis pro or a golf pro or have a go at rugby. Over there, it's it's very very simple. The dream is, and everyone chases it. And when you look at it as an outsider in there, you're like, wow, this guy 
would make a great career for himself in Europe if he was to chase that dream and and probably set up his family. But like their their I wouldn't say ignorance, but their inner desire to be an all black has to be commended. It, it's so so powerful and is there is such a strong um, asset for keeping them uh, based in New Zealand. Like I mentioned Jonah Lomu there and probably he is he's more than just a, an excuse. He's a proper excuse. Like you can you can certainly use that one and get away with it. Like I remember you talking about uh, on that tour specifically 20 years ago, you know, ha- trying to hang on to his bootlaces and you, you probably tried to do anything you, you could to try and stop Jonah Lomu, the late great Jonah Lomu. But when you saw that man running towards you, like what what was going through your head, Ronan? <laughs> it's it's actually um it's incredible to think actually that two people of such different bills could be on the pitch at the same time. Uh, but he had a, such a caring heart and he was uh, such a good guy that he obviously he was a competitor. He just wanted to get over the game line. But like, as he was kind of busting through you and, and kneeing you in the head and getting you out of the way, he'd nearly kind of carry you with you and place you gently so you wouldn't get crushed <laughs> by his fall. So, and yeah, geez, I remember him, and you remember uh, Twigamala, Inga the Winger, like some uh, incredible uh, species of players that produce, uh, obviously from the islands down there as well. Um, so it's uh, great memories, obviously, great memories from playing against um, such special players that have unfortunately passed on. Uh, my my cat would be able to to tell the players all about what it's like facing that sort of uh, fearsome uh, all black uh, this summer as well. Uh, can I ask about that O two O two tour as well, Ronan? Like, was is that a rough experience for you as a young out half? Is, is, or is o, that o, o two? I'm after mixing up. I was talking about England going to yeah England. Going, what, what year was that? Was that? Oh, well, that was the O one. So there was two thousand. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was I, no three World Cup. It was no three World Cup. So we Ireland go to New Zealand in O two, play there twice, lose the first one narrowly, lose the second one uh pretty healthily. You start both tests, you get taken off for Humphreys, I think, in the first test and it's just yeah, a, when, when did England play New Zealand? It could have been well, could it have been the same summer potentially because it was only two yeah, tests. Yeah, yeah, okay. Okay, so I'm not I'm not I'm not hundred percent sure. Don't take my word for it. No, no, I'm not I'm not mixing up the years though, isn't it? It was because they made that that was a big statement for them. Yeah, going into the 2003 World Cup. So they had a New Zealand go to uh, a tour there in, in 1998. They go to a, a tour there again in 2003 and uh, 2004. Yeah, and then there's a, an autumn international in, in 02, um, which, uh, which they end up winning. And then they beat them 15-13 on the 14th of June 2003 in Wellington. So it's actually the same year as the World Cup. And then uh, yeah. winning the Northern Hemisphere the previous year. So it's back-to-back wins for England, which uh, bring them right into a World Cup. Yes, so they, just to show they could do it, you know. Yeah. Uh, from Ireland's perspective, though, was that something that you were trying to do in O two? You know, what what is it, like 15 months out from a World Cup, we got to show that we can go down there and actually No, no, the, no, honestly, that wouldn't have been the mindset back right. then. No, but obviously, uh, you know, it wasn't as if it was a Sunday pub team either on, you know. We had some really classy players with a huge ambition on our team going down there and the goal was to win a test most definitely and we saw no reason why we wouldn't win a test and I think 
performances will show that we knocked on the door, but we didn't kick the door down. So that's that's what happens in those in those games, be it from missing goal kicks or not executing under pressure. But we most definitely had over the years um, numerous opportunities to win test games in New Zealand. How formative can that be for a young half, that a young out half, that experience? Because what we're probably going to see over the next couple of weeks is Harry Byrne getting minutes, meaningful minutes for Ireland. And you know what, it may, it may be next Wednesday, he may start against the Maori and, and maybe he won't get meaningful minutes in the tests if, if Carberry and Sexton are, are fully fit and firing. But that pressure cooker that he might be thrown into over the next couple of weeks, and this question actually probably pertains to Carberry as well, how formative can these three tests be for, for those young out halves? Oh, this is this is game changing territory. I would think this is the acceleration that a young ten needs. If he's able to, I suppose, show glimpses of of form. Yes, he'll make mistakes, but is there uh, enough opportunity to grow this guy with a World Cup fifteen months away? The upside for for Harry Byrne is absolutely huge. This guy should be um, incredibly excited about what the next. Uh, six weeks uh, entails for him because it's essentially um, you know I think being a, an ex-player and a coach too there's so much only you can derive from training what happens in the game scenario is just so powerful and leads to whole new opportunities for him this is something where all the shackles could be completely thrown off and within a space of four months you could be looking at a completely uh, redefined uh, young old half capable of taking the world on What can you say for certain right now about Harry Byrne Ronan because it feels that there's a lot of things that are uncertain and a lot of things that I guess people are seeing in training and and are being reported but but what can you say for certain right now about him and what he will bring to Ireland this summer if he plays I can say with certainty I'm not in a position probably to to give an accurate account of of how he plays and who he is as a person, you know. Mm. I I think I read that he started four games as an out half this season, which is obviously completely undercooked. Yeah. But the training environment in Leinster with all the internationals and with excellent coaching is a great launching pad. What he needs now is meaningful games. But is the step from URC potential? Um, average games to the Maori to a test game uh, the formula to set him up to succeed I would have my my doubts about that but if there is uh, a massive burning desire in this guy to to run Ireland's attack for the next 10 years this is the opportunity now Who are you starting? more so Sorry. in training when he gets the opportunity uh, to go against the, the, the test team that would probably uh, highlight to the coaches whether he's good enough to start in the Maori game but for me it can change very quickly if he shines in training he goes well in the Maori game um, Ireland are in a position where they need to understand their depth at out half and we're only there's only well no there's four out halves for me on the tour because uh, this guy Frawley is is incredibly um, exciting and interesting and I think if you want to play the game uh, with tempo and with wit I think He's a great five to have in midfield, but maybe you're looking after the 50-minute mark for that as well. Does he cover, uh, you know, the 10, 12, 15 axis, and and you have scrum half Frawley and 
one more outside back as your replacement for, for a test game. Yeah, it's going to be... People would say Carberry does exactly the same. He does exactly so, but he needs to be informed. It's going to be very interesting. It all gets underway in, in six days' time with that Maori game anyway and then the first test on, on Saturday week. Uh, just one last thing before I let you go, Ronan. That, that 0-2 test series, I'm not sure if you remember, but Scott Robertson was at number eight for both of those tests for the All Blacks. He... Uh, I think he just showed every coach in the world up once again on Saturday morning by his uh, breakdancing routine in the rain on the pitch after their, their great win in Super Rugby. Why haven't we seen a Ronan O'Gara dance at uh, full-time after winning a championship? No, because that's his, that's, his, uh, that's his dance, that's his gig. That's not for me. I, no, I don't have, I don't have that talent. Unfortunately, <laughs> I'd love to give it a crack, but that's not me. Yeah, it sounds like you're actually um, you're, you're angry about it. That you've got it hidden in all of this is the unbelievable achievement of a six-piece. Mm. I mean, that seems to be secondary to his break dancing. It's I don't think he gets anywhere near the credit he deserves to mastermind that. And I think for people who saw that, I've never seen such a one-sided final in in, in a game of rugby. Uh, they completely demolished, destroyed the Blues, and uh, it was a it was a masterclass. Yeah, they were absolutely sensational. Uh, Ronan, enjoy the the quiet side of Ibiza. We'll chat to you soon. Cheers. See you, Shane. Bye, boys. Hey, Ronan. Ronan O'Gara there on the line. It is 11 minutes past eight. You're with us here on OTBAM. OTBAM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. And up next, we're going to be joined in studio by Irish tennis coach and ex-pro Jenny Claffey. But before that, here's the Republic of Ireland international Roman McLaughlin speaking ahead of the World Cup qualifier with Georgia on Monday. Back in a few. Talking about the the confidence in the squad, but I suppose because of the success of the campaign so far it brings added pressure and a lot of people will look at the previous game against Georgia think 11-0 it's just a case of turn up next Monday and it's job done but how do the players cope with that pressure where there's previous games reference the Sweden game where you would have been underdogs this is a game that you expect to win it's a very different type of game to manage um yeah, it's a difficult one, but I think that we prepare for each game as best as we can, no matter who the opponents are. Um, so coming up to the Georgia game, we'll prepare as professionally as we do coming up to the Sweden game. So I think that's almost as important, important as anything as international football can bring anything. So you have to be well prepared for everything you get. And you obviously came out, came on in that game against Georgia and Tala. You'd be hoping to feature next Monday. Is that something that becomes clearer as the week goes on? Certain things that happen on the training ground where Vera might give an indication, a role that you might have next Monday? Yeah, um, of course. Days leading up to the game, you might have an idea in your head if you're going to be playing or not, or maybe if you're starting or not. But I think nothing is set in stone until the team is named on game day for me because you never know what twists and turns it might take, so it's about being prepared. OTB AM. It is 14 minutes past eight. You're welcome back to OTB AM, which is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. We are on the eve of Wimbledon, basically, at this point. It all gets underway uh, at the weekend and into next week. Jenny Claffey, uh, ex-tennis pro and tennis coach, is with us in studio. Jenny, how are you getting on? Not too bad. Thanks for having me in here today. It's great to be here. This is the 
time of the year where people, I guess, even kids are off school, they're watching Wimbledon, they're like, I want to play tennis. And I presume your own industry just goes to a whole other level over the next little while. Yeah, this is the time where you see people out on the streets nearly with their tennis rackets playing tennis. But uh, if I know a lot of people who say, oh, oh those two weeks of Wimbledon, that's when I used to play tennis. Mm. And now they're coming back to tennis and going, I want to actually learn how to play. So yeah, this time is really the busy period. What is the uh, tennis coaching industry like at the moment? I think since since COVID, it has hit an all level. Like it's so high. There's so many people playing tennis. Obviously, there was a time there where golf and tennis were the only sports that you could play. Yeah. So uh, say, for example, in the club that I'm in, we went from 250 members to 900. So right. there's been a huge increase in, in people participating in tennis, which is great. And has that maintained its way through to, I guess, the post-COVID yeah. times? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And a lot of the clubs around Dublin are at their full capacity. So they're not there. There's waiting lists to get in. Right. Okay. Yeah. When you were starting off, was it also a similar situation for you that Wimbledon was on television and it was it kind of increased the incentive a little bit or it didn't really matter what time of the year it was, you just wanted to be out there playing? Well, for me, it was I always wanted to be at the top of the game, be a yeah. professional tennis player, but Wimbledon was always the goal. Do you know, I had this poster in my bedroom, I, I wrote myself, I was like, Wimbledon is my dream, I'll play it soon and win it. And I had that all through my childhood up on, as a poster on the wall. Uh, so Wimbledon was the most prestigious and the one that I think I wanted to win the most. I guess just the fact that it was like beamed into Irish living rooms every single summer, the, the, the idea that you can actually see your dream on TV every single year is the, the sort of incentive. So, so what other things in, informed us for you throughout throughout the rest of the year like I know obviously your, your mother was a tennis player as well so I, I presume that helps when it comes to having this visualisation of, of what I want to do Yeah well I think I, I grew up with four older brothers and my mum was a tennis coach so I think the incentive was there from early on that I wanted to be better than the boys and I think maybe from about seven onwards I thought okay I want to be a professional tennis player I think it was helped by the fact that my mum was a coach and then she, she was able to provide lots of opportunities for me that maybe others mightn't have had if they didn't have a parent involved in the sport and um, um, so I think from as I said seven it was the dream was to get to Wimbledon like I wanted to be professional tennis player and that was the pinnacle of, of what I wanted to achieve Was the sense when you were a kid that this was possible that like that there was no obstacles in the way that this is very much even as a as an Irish young tennis player that this is very much an achievable goal Yeah well, I didn't see any obstacles being an issue at all I just for me it was like I'm going to get there so I was yeah. so driven myself that I thought okay I can get there no matter what it takes didn't see the obstacles for what they were for people who don't realise, what what ha- what happens throughout your your childhood and and your rise towards. Uh tennis professionalism at some point because it's, it's a pretty bumpy road I think it's fair to say Yeah it's definitely not straightforward in, in any sport success is not in straight lines but for tennis to try to be a tennis professional in Ireland it's very difficult um, because we're an island so if you want to go and travel uh, to play internationally you have to travel so you always have to take a flight which is more costly um, it's always going to be take a little bit more effort You've, you're at a disadvantage in one way because in a lot of the tournaments across Europe and internationally if you're a home nation so the tournament's on in Ireland let's say you're more likely to get a wild card and get into like a main draw so your opportunities are are there whereas coming from Ireland we don't have we had no opportunities going into tournament sports you were almost always at a disadvantage but um, being in Ireland being in Ireland trying to be professional big problem I faced as a kid was um, the 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 amount of players that we had here playing and who wanted to be professional it just wasn't there and um, there was a lot of kids playing but they weren't necessarily pushing on in tennis they were playing so many other sports um, and then the facilities obviously we we're in Ireland and we had no indoor facilities they were only really coming into the form at that stage when I was a kid and um, now there's you see more coming up around the country but not a- enough and um, so facilities the, the surface was an issue um, and then competition there wasn't enough competition here and um, but 
I, I, as I got into my teens, I started to travel and was traveling around the world and playing and competing. Where would you have to go to get good competition? Europe was probably where I went. So from uh, the age of 11, I started to travel internationally. So I was traveling alone at times oh, with a coach, I mean, but without your, my parents, which is obviously difficult at, at 11 years old. But um, the first tournament I played internationally was 11 in Italy. We were away for two weeks. That was like an eye opener. In what way? Well, at first it gave me a taste of what it what it meant to be to be playing and be travelling and what it was like to be a, a, an athlete, you know, at 11 years old and, and a professional tennis player. That's what it felt like to me. Is this was like a big stage. There was people watching, you know. I had Ireland written on the back of my t- T-shirt. Like, right. I felt so proud. This was amazing. And that really gave me a big taste of, of okay, I want this and gave me the fire in the belly. You're representing your country now. Yeah, that meant that was, that's a big deal. That's incredible. So when you talk about the lack of competition potentially within Ireland, the lack of facilities. Is it a sense that even as an 11-year-old, you're going abroad and you don't know if, if I'm ready for this until you actually get there? Yeah, you don't know what you're going to face. You can only presume that they're going to be these incredible tennis players. Obviously, if they're playing for their countries, they're going to be amazing. And they were. I remember being completely blown away by the competition when, when I, I was playing, like how good everybody was. Whereas in Ireland, if you're at the top, you know, there might be maybe four to six players who are really good there wasn't this huge depth of players whereas over there there was just so many good players everyone was amazing how did he match up um on my first experience uh, yeah we were we didn't win let's just say that right. <laughs> um but i mean no we we, we definitely weren't at the top we didn't end okay. up at the top of the pool but uh it was great to get that experience and see what it was like out there and see what the competition is like and as i said i took that home with me and was like okay this is it i can do this right that's what i was just about to ask so like you see that experience you go you go through that abroad and you actually get home and that wimbledon poster becomes more of a reality after your experience yeah yeah. It becomes more, the, the, the dream is it's kind of more realistic at this point. So what, what happens after that and, and how do you go about building from, from that first experience? So I said I was 11 when I went there. So I remember coming back and, and saying it to my mum that like, yeah, I really want to do this. You know, I want to I want to be a professional. And then from there, she and my dad, my family, they, they provided every opportunity possible for me to then try and go on and follow this dream of mine. Um, <clears throat> when I was in fourth year in school, so I was 15, I took the year off and moved to Spain to go to tennis academy. Right. So that was kind of the big biggest move I made before that in those years between 11 and 15 I was training full time you know before school after school and um, traveling a little bit internationally but at 15 I up and left and moved to Spain to go to an academy um, and then I was right amongst then all the other players of my age and a little bit older and I was really being exposed to what it's like to be a pro then at that stage so I lived there um, for four months and was staying with a family over there and that was a big shock to the system do you know but it was all in pursuit of this dream this big goal of mine to be a professional tennis player so it didn't matter what kind of heartache I was suffering or homesickness that I had I wanted to get to Wimbledon I said Wimbledon was the the dream I hate to be unbelievably cliche here but um, Agassiz's book is obviously something that a lot of people use as a as a <laughs> touch point on, on tennis which is so, some of the things you said there you know like even in his book about you know the fact that his his dad would drive him everywhere to, to tournaments obviously being on an island is is a big impact on, on your career as a, as a young Irish tennis player but also as you mentioned there the fact of going to a tennis academy like in his book he details how he absolutely hated the, the tennis academy he was sent to because it kind of just felt like this very regimented training camp all the time 
Was that your experience as well? Is that what tennis training camps are? Well, I guess like tennis is like it's not a monotonous sport as such, but I mean, it's repetition. There's so much repetition involved. You go to these academies and you are churning in day in, day out and you're just hitting as many tennis balls every day. And it was almost the same thing every day. But I knew that that's what I needed. I wasn't getting that at home. Yeah. So I relished it and loved it and had this amazing opportunity to play against different players and people from different places. Like to me, that was amazing. Do you know, I thought this was, oh, my God, this is where I want to be, you know and how can I get better and how can I be better than these people and what's next for me so I was always looking ahead I was never kind of caught in that moment of like oh this is boring or you know but this is what it's going to take Jenny like fascinating to hear you talk there about the the joy of you know representing your country and wearing that Irish vest like just wondering like and I know you've been coaching now for, for what 13 or so years uh, since your retirement but like how, how does that compare that feeling of, of, of you know playing in a, in a big tournament during your career versus now seeing maybe the look on, on, on a kid's face or, or a teenager's face who you know something a small scale in the game suddenly clicks like how does that feeling you know from from competing to coaching kind of compare yeah, it's, it's a very different experience, definitely. Like it's, in coaching, it's very rewarding. Whereas when I was playing um, competitively and going out to play matches, there was always this sense of enjoy this moment because this may never happen again. Do you know, like go out there, those feelings that the, the in your belly that you get, the nerves, that feeling, you can never replicate that in your life ever. Nothing compares to that since being re- retiring. Um, I don't think I could ever emulate that feeling of nerves and okay, this is all on you. Go out there, do what you can do. But now, when I compare that to coaching is that it's it's a little bit different you don't get the fire in the belly but you get a rewarding sense that you're helping people and maybe potentially helping them grow their dream into being tennis players like when you th- when you think about retiring in in in, in your mid twenties, and, and we've had different panels on, on off the wall over the years of, you know, sports people talking about early retirement and trying to deal with the, with this this idea that that you know that the career that they had built out for themselves in their head was suddenly cut short, uh, and injury enforced. Like, how do you feel about that now? I know sports psychology is is a, is a massive thing now, and, and players are are looked after and kind of guided in terms of what comes next. But that must have been quite a difficult uh, period for you. Yeah, that was a huge, huge um, disappointment. Uh, obviously, it was my career was only starting to, to build and I was having success and starting to win and getting the recognition and things were going really, really well. And then it was just cut short pretty much overnight um, I had a, a huge identity crisis when this happened so you know I had always been Jenny the tennis player and I was t- Wimbledon was going to be the dream that's where I was going I was so close I felt like I was so close to achieving that and then overnight this was taken away from you so yeah it was like who am I without tennis um, I really struggled with that at the time but as you mentioned there's sports psychology I had a great uh, sports psychologist at the time and was working with him and while I was playing uh, because I realised also while I was competing that there's nothing separating me to any other player except what happens between your two ears. That was the biggest difference. So I, I hired a sports psychologist because I really found that that was going to make the difference. And it did at the time. And that really got me through then um, the retirement phase. But um, after I retired from tennis, I, I was thinking there's no way I could give up on sport just like this. So I actually, in 2018, joined the um, Irish Rugby Sevens setup and thought, all oh, right, well, if I can't get the Olympics with tennis, maybe I'll get there with the sevens so I gave that a go but uh, unfortunately injury cut that one short as well I I only lasted six months with six bone breaks so uh, that was all too quick as well but uh, as you mentioned yeah it was a big struggle like those transitional periods from being an athlete to being Jenny Claffey without tennis 
and like in, even in terms of an individ, individual like an individual sport versus a team sport you see people retire from from team sports and I guess they miss that that added atmosphere and and camaraderie from from their teammates as well but how, how is it in an individual sport because you know for boxers or for for Formula One drivers or for snooker players that retire uh, and tennis players as well it, it must be quite uh, quite surreal because you've been you know, there by yourself, and you're there with your coach growing up. But uh, all of a sudden, it's just it's just you in the big bad world again. Yeah, because um, I, as an individual athlete, you have a team around you. So obviously, I had like two tennis coaches. I had um, a sports psychologist. I had a fitness trainer. Um, I had a really great close knit um, support group around me. And then overnight as well, that was just gone. Do you know, they were there every day checking in. How are you doing? You know, what not, and giving me the brief, etc. Like what we we're going to be doing every day. And then just like that, they're gone as well. And now I don't mean. They just dump me like like that. But as in, you get used to having that support network around you all the time. So that was also a struggle as well, not having those people around you because obviously they had to move on and, and, and move on with their own lives as well. So uh, that was a, tr- a tough transition too, as well as the not having tennis there. So in the middle, there's obviously the part where your star continues to rise. The, the academy and your time in Spain goes really well and you become uh, in a position where you've still continued to believe that Wimbledon can happen for you so so you just talk us through what happens over the next couple of years after that Yeah so after living in Spain then um, I also lived in Holland as well and was competing in a league over there so you're playing at European leagues so you're playing against different countries um, sorry different clubs around Europe so that was a really great experience at getting match play so that happened through that fourth and fifth year in school and then I suffered um, a shoulder injury uh, unfortunately which had me out for nearly a year and then I was at that stage um, in, in fifth year in school so I was only 16 at the time where I was like okay am I going to pursue my education um, at, here in school or are we going to homeschool and I'm going to make a career out of this so that was kind of the, the really important vital age to make that decision yeah. um, but I had an injury at the time so we decided okay I'll finish out my, my education here in school and then in sixth year I ended up getting glandular fever and that had me out for five months as well so I had nearly two years there off from the sport and then it was kind of like okay is it too late now and then I made a decision then to to go to college in in Dublin because I'd missed two years of tennis like I thought okay that's it's it's how can I get back to that level and get competing overnight which it just wasn't possible so I went to college and in hindsight maybe that wasn't the right decision in terms of for my playing career and mm-hmm. um, might have been better to to just train maybe for a year or two and then join the tour but listen this is experience what do you think your ceiling was if the injury and glandular fever didn't happen at that stage yeah I think I think I think I'd be in Wimbledon this week if I didn't have an injury. Really? Yeah, yeah, I do fully believe it, yeah. And so those two years are absolutely the most pivotal points in your career and they're, they're just taken away and it's not even that you're catching up afterwards, you just lose that development entirely, is it? Yeah, like those two years are so important for my game, for com- competition um, and then obviously I, I'm saying I could have been in Wimbledon, who knows what injuries could have happened but with, with the path that my career was progressing I would have been in Wimbledon by now. How, how do you feel when you think about that? Yeah, it's pretty gut-wrenching. Um, as I said, I had that identity crisis and didn't want to have anything to do with tennis at that time. I hated it. I didn't want to see a tennis racket. I got invited to go to Wimbledon Centre Court. Didn't want to go, didn't go, just just didn't want to be in part of, a part of the game. But I can look back now and see how that was an amazing short-lived career but I had a great experience and, and great success when I did play but I'm looking at some of the girls I competed against and beat and who are playing in Wimbledon this week and you know that's a bit sickening as well 
because we have so many conversations around sport in this country where you know you just need to have such a, a volume of tennis players for there to be that one gifted person and it turns out that people maybe aren't aware that the talent was there in this situation and it was actually the injury. It was just a lack of luck as opposed to not having the gem in the system, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can you could say that now about the system as well. Like, are there those sure. talented players there, but they're just not getting the chance. Whereas yeah. I had the chance, I had every opportunity there, but unfortunately my body let me down. When did you get invited to Centre Court? Uh, in 2018. And what, what was the, the context around that? As in, not why not? I didn't go. Uh, uh, yeah, exactly. And and what what was they were inviting you just as a as a as an ex pro yeah, sort of thing to just you know, friends of mine who oh, were sorry, living in right, London. Okay. Yeah, and and uh, had tickets, and they were like, "Do you want to come?" I was like, "Okay." <laughs> I said no. This was just purely recreational, sort of to go along, watch the tennis yeah, for a while. Yeah. You couldn't look at it. No, but I have to say, if there's any women tickets going now, <laughs> I would take them. <laughs> I think uh, everybody in Team OTB would be the same there. Yeah, <laughs> join the queue. <laughs> um, that that's remarkable. Like like I don't think. Um, sorry, Shane. Do you want to come in there? No, no, I was just t- just taking out loud there. I think um, when when Jenny was talking about, you know, falling out of love with the game, like, how did you fall in love in love with the game originally? Like, you think of you know a lot of rock stars in, on the tennis circuit back in the back in the, the era where you were probably growing up. You'd never had Lova and Hingis and uh, women who just tore the sport asunder. I mean, who who, who did you look up to in, in that period as people who were probably key figures in in getting you? Uh, to fall in love with the game in the first place well the love of the game definitely came you know from my mum and my family I think you know growing up with tennis I was it was almost just byproduct that I was involved in it um, and I think as I said that having my brothers was I just wanted to be better than them so that that came from there that love for my, my mum and she was so, she is so passionate about the game but like my idol growing up was Kim Kleisters so not sure if you're she's from Belgium um, and also Serena Williams so they were I know, kind of at the top of the game at that stage and I was looking up to them and thinking okay Serena Williams is who I want to be I want to play like her I want to be like her I want to be strong like her and, and I kind of moulded my game around how she played played because I wanted to be like the two of them like even from your own career and, and it kind of ties in nicely to to our preview of Wimbledon as well because uh, a lot of people talking about Serena Williams's his comeback at Eastbourne and, and how well she's looked uh, which is kind of um, I guess intimidating for the, for the other players in that women's uh, circuit in Wimbledon but uh, the player she was she was playing that uh, doubles with Ange Jabeur, this Tunisian who's, who's now up to number three in the world. Um, you have history with this girl. In fact, you you <laughs> you battered her off the court at one stage. Six love, six love. Uh, thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> yeah. So uh, myself and Ange played uh, when I was playing Federation Cup for Ireland. She was obviously playing for Tunisia, and we were playing in Egypt. And uh, it was a I think it was one all in the tie, and it came down to this match. And um, we uh, yeah we hammered her love and love. So that is my claim to fame because she's now the number three, uh, number three seed in Wimbledon, and I have her as an outside favourite for Wimbledon. That, that, like that is, it, it's quite an incredible thing. Like if she does go on to win Wimbledon now, you'll be desperately looking for the tapes <laughs> of, of of that match. But like that, like did, did you did you see anything? Like, obviously, if you beat her, love, love. It, it, maybe this is a stupid question, but did you see see anything in her at that point uh, of her career where you thought? she could go on and do bigger and better things. No, you see, like at the time you look back and you think like, as I said to you, like you go to play these matches and everybody looks the same. Everybody is an amazing forehand. Everybody is amazing backhand. It's hard to, 
to tell what's going to be the difference between people. Maybe she just needed to mature. She's a few years younger than I am, so maybe she just needed to mature a little bit more and gain a little bit more experience. And obviously she's done that very well and she's certainly maximising her career now. You know, I'm looking at her playing with Serena Williams going, that could be me. <laughs> that should be me. Yeah, and it's not even a tongue-in-cheek thing. It's like, it seriously could be. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's, that's what I mean. Looking at those players, I'm like, who I've beaten and people I've played against and you're like, that is where it really hits you hard. Is, it, is this still a work in progress trying to come to terms with that? Does it look that way? <laughs> no, no, I have no, I've accepted it now. No, I've definitely right. accepted it. Yeah, and I, and I can look back positively at the career and the time that I spent and gave to tennis and I have absolutely no regrets really other than maybe making that decision at 16 to 18. But other than that, I have no regrets about what, what went on. Because I guess nobody makes it to the top of the game without being unbelievably obsessed with it like it would be totally understandable if if there was still like this huge sort of not, not a feeling of regret but this this, this feeling of no I guess it is regret a feeling of regret about how the, the whole thing went it would be totally in keeping with the elite athlete's mindset yeah, well I would be lying if I said that I'm not absolutely sickened that I'm not playing in Wimbledon and, and as I said with those girls who are on the same trajectory as me playing alongside them knowing that I'm have beaten them that I could be better than them knowing that I could be playing over there playing representing Ireland representing myself my family everybody you know that is something that still goes through my mind and uh, I just try not to think about it I guess if I'm being honest Uh, obviously the uh, injuries are something that you couldn't really have uh, seen coming but if you could go back and you know try and uh, change things with regards to to the system or to, to the opportunities that you had as a young tennis player what would you change? And I guess that's probably a question about where tennis is at at the moment for for very talented youngsters in, in this country. I think, yeah, I think um, something that definitely needs to change here is like the attitude towards tennis. So like people actually believing that there is an opportunity that you can become a professional tennis player in Ireland. It doesn't have to be that you have to choose other sports. So like there, as you, you mentioned there, there can be these gems, diamonds in the rough who are that talented who can become professional tennis players. But you want to be able to do it here at home, not have to ship away, you know, move away at 15 and, and be away from your family and all that. So I think there's an attitude um, definitely towards tennis here that needs to change I think it needs to come from the absolute like the, the grassroots level and, and from coaches as well I think um, a lot of coaches in Ireland are and rightly so are out making a living from coaching whereas it's not there are not that many who are able to give all that time to those um, amazing talented players mm-hmm. because you need to obviously be you know accommodating your own life as well um, so I think that the coaches the system here with the coaches like the attitude towards if you see a talented player how do you take them further it's just not really very clearly laid out here what's the answer at the moment if, if you are presented with a very talented player well so I've had a, I have a situation at the moment where um, a kid of, uh, who's attending coaching is he's only nine and he's really talented and I'm going where, where do I what do I do with him now you know I know what he needs but I can't give that to him in terms of I, I don't have the time unless they were you know able to afford to hire you full time and you could go full time with him it's not available here so that nine year old essentially needs a full time coach to be able to achieve his potential at this stage yeah and he needs fitness training and he needs you know he needs a lot of hitting with other players his own age or better players which is not available to him in my current setup. that's really interesting and, and like are, are his parents and all that like very well aware that this is the path that tennis is his thing and this is this is potentially something that Durant are a winner with well yeah he said himself he wants to be a professional tennis right. player it's not often you hear the kids like who really mean that you know? that's you with your Wimbledon poster I'm looking as a at yeah, <laughs> a mini me yeah exactly yeah is it okay if we talk about Wimbledon uh, this year? Is really, yeah. <laughs> or is it too yeah. sore a subject? Where are the tissues here? <laughs> um, Serena's back. How has she looked so far? 
Yeah, amazing to have Serena Williams back first. So you just have to say that kind of largely came out of the blue there. She announced two weeks ago on social media she was going to enter Wimbledon. Um, she's playing this week, as we know, with Ange Jabeur in doubles. Mm. Um, apparently she's not looking too bad, but you know her, she wasn't serving as well as she can. And her serve is a huge weapon for her on grass court. Um, I think this is going to be a, a very interesting Wimbledon with her, her name in the mix because I think she still has the power and presence of Serena Williams so a lot of the players of the draw will, will lose just based on the fact that she's there playing Serena Williams but it's very hard to see how she's going to really ha- make a dent in the draw when she hasn't played for a year she hasn't played a match since last year in Wimbledon the first round in Wimbledon nobody seems to know what kind of training has been going on but could this be Serena Williams swan song could she go ahead and, 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 and have that end that amazing career that she's had and match Margaret Court with the 24 Grand Slams you'd like to see it but Absolutely. I'm not sure I'm not sure that this is is, is the, the 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 end or the, the the end for her it's funny Jenny you mentioned the, the, the Serena serve there and like that's something possibly people have been speaking about from Eastbourne that uh, and it may seem, not seem an obvious thing but she is serving and returning really really well and like the Serena of old like heading into a major tournament and again as a coach maybe with your coach's hat on here as well how important Again, it seems obvious, but how important is that uh, having the serving and returning part of your game completely nailed down and, uh, you know, no rustiness whatsoever? Yeah, that's essential part of the game. Of serve and return are the two most important elements in in the tennis game. So, especially for a player like Williams, who would have won a lot of points off her serve with aces or or un, unreturnable like forced errors off her serve. If she hasn't been playing and she's not matched tight in those tight moments, can she produce those serves? Can she get them into the corner where she needs them to be? As well as that, though, you know, playing on grass. Uh, grass is a very fast surface, so you need to move very well on a grass court. You need to stay very low. Take the ball very early which suits her game but she has been known for her movement in the past not being the strongest part of her game so if she's been out of the game for a year you know it's going to be hard to see how she's going to be flying around the court as such mm. and and penetrating the ball the way she can do if, if she hasn't if she doesn't have that match tightness and in those moments where she needs the 30 you know the 30 all in the game or the juice points where she needs to produce the big serve or the big return does she have that like it was a big moment um like when Serena lost Patrick Moratoglu her coach uh, when he went off to to uh, I guess coach Simona Halep quite recently and, and, and like 10 years with Serena is quite a long time and you spoke about the importance of, of that coach and that coach player um, relationship as well like how big is that is that like I don't know is that like the, you know it's it's almost like the Karate Kid Mr. Miyagi thing you, you need that person who's so close to you like that must have been quite a Quite a big thing for Serena to lose Patrick uh, and probably is why there were so many retirement rumours fueling around over the last month or two. Yeah, I would have felt the same. I would have thought that when, when Mortagli left to go to Halep that that was the end of Serena, but she's back. Um, yeah, the coach-player relationship is essential and paramount to the success of your career, really, because they are the person you turn to um, after matches. They are the first person you call. You know, they're, they're there at every training session. You have that special bond with your coach and they know you better than you know yourself you know and well if you can develop a relationship like that then you're very lucky and I was very lucky to have that with a number of my coaches Um, and speaking of that if you look at um, Emma Raducanu and her coach's situation she's looking for a fourth coach now in the last year so I definitely think that's playing into the fact that she's not having the success that we all expect her to 
Just before we wrap, Jenny, can we get a quick prediction on each of the draws, men's and women's? Okay, women's, I'm going to say Iga Shiontek. Okay. Yeah, the obvious She'll be one. able to transfer it from Clay, you think? I think with her six title tournament wins in a row, I think definitely okay. she's going to. Ons Jabor is my my uh, outside favourite and the please, men's please not for Jenny Claffey <laughs> yeah. so I won't say to mind <laughs> and then for the men Djokovic probably unfortunately I think he's going to win this one but outside favourite I look at Berrettini of Italy he just won okay. Queens there last week Yeah, and Kyrgios is an exciting player to look out for that'd be great he's always always won he will be featured on this show we, a day in day out over the next <laughs> couple of weeks thanks to Colin Buig no question about it uh, Jenny that was really interesting stuff thanks a million for popping into us this thanks morning uh, up next we are chatting to the football pods Tommy Rooney he's going to be picking his key matchups ahead of this weekend's All-Ireland quarterfinals but there was a message from the news round and Mick McCarthy last night have a look these teams playing each other yeah well, we've got it this Sunday and I don't think that there's that level of excitement for this because I don't think like it's funny if, every, if, if Mayo win this Sunday there's a clip from the football pod with Paddy and James that will be played over and over again I'll probably be the one playing it here <laughs> but it's like to, Tommy's like Kerry have a chance or they may have a chance of it. no 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 absolutely none whatsoever and both of them double down they were given three or four chances to kind of say maybe you're a could if this happened or whatever and they're just like no chance whatsoever and I think that's the feeling everybody has I think there's like we're used to Mayo miracles and them finding it where we don't think it's there yeah. but I feel like any logic in you thinks that even even for them it's going to be a step too far this when time. does logic but, ever apply to Mayo we don't know anything about Kerry because they haven't played anyone yet when does logic ever apply to Mayo it ever never ever. has but yeah. that's what I'm saying that even with the, the, the <laughs> even with the weight that you apply to <laughs> to Mayo when you're talking about logic still some has to come there's a great moment in this week's uh, football pod where Paddy Andrews is clearly the most confident of the three people on the podcast in the outcome this weekend. Very, very certain that Kerry are going to beat Mayo. And Tommy Rooney, moderating it, uh, jumps in and says, are Kerry overconfident here? Despite the fact that it's the Dublin man who is building Kerry up this weekend more than anybody else. Tommy Rooney, a very good morning to you. Morning on. Hello, Shane. How you doing, boys? Why is everybody writing Mayo off? What is, what is going on? Why have we forgotten that Mayo are Mayo? I don't know, Owen. And I, I do know that you're doing great work behind the scenes um, to try and address that. <laughs> I know that you've been tipping away, chipping away at this overconfidence, this this exuberance of, um, you know, being being sure that there's going to be a Dublin Kerry semi-final. I don't know, because I just have a sneaky feeling that this Mayo team are Mayo. Like, they have stuttered through the qualifiers. They're in Crow Park again and they're going to be good to go when they're facing... They're going to raise their levels to play Kerry and, and I, I just think we're going to see a little bit more of what we saw in Tralee, that rainy night in Tralee in March than we saw in the league final a few weeks later. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of with you on that, to be honest. I think that the, the league... I think you can make a case fair enough for Kerry to win and win well if you want, but basically in the league final maybe isn't the soundest way to build that argument that, that's just my gripe this week the league final is not real um, no. when, when you're asking I think Andy, Andy said it to you um, in that interview you had with him two weeks ago Andy Moore and the, the speed was missing in the Mayo defence the last time and that just like the speed in the Mayo, def- the Mayo defence helps them defend but it's also their main form of attack so that would probably explain the huge gulf in a lot of ways Okay so we are going to go through some of the key matchups this weekend Tommy where do you want to start? Well I'm going to start with the one matchup that I'm sure is going to happen on and that is Go with Sean Kelly taking Rain O'Neill. And it is one of a couple of key areas, uh, battle areas that's going to take place in this game on Sunday. It is going to be an absolutely cracking match. 
I really hope it lives up to the expectation because we've got two teams here that are just uh, that can be very exciting to watch they have very exciting players um, I think Kelly is made for Ryan O'Neill I think Ryan O'Neill had way too much freedom against Donegal Brendan McCall had done a really good job on him in the league and O'Neill just I don't know whether he had a chip on his shoulder because a few people have been questioning whether or not he'd had a proper championship performance yet they've been saying he hasn't scored enough from playing championship but he delivered 1-7 the last day against Donegal kicked 5 points from play I think Ryan O'Neill is going to love playing in Crow Park he's a rock star um, but Sean Kelly is the beating heart of that Galway team. As much as important and as magical as Shane Walsh is, Sean Kelly provides the opposite on the far end of it all. So I think Kelly will be able to mix it up from going forward. I think that he's a match physically for him. I think athletically he's a match for him. And, you know, in terms of, speaking of a few Galway friends this week, in terms of attitude and application, he will absolutely love this job this week as well. Kevin Walsh was suggesting they go zonal this weekend. I think there's probably going to be a, a, a mixture of that too, but I don't think you can leave Rio O'Neill in the zone. Like, I would absolutely listen to what Kevin Walsh is saying, but I don't think you leave Rio O'Neill in the zone. Like, Tommy, knowing what to do with Rio O'Neill is one thing, but lumping long balls in as well on, on that goalkeeper, like Conor Gleeson, the Dunmore man, has, has been has been iffy in some of the games for Galway probably one of their one of their weaker points like you think back to Ethan Rafferty's performance in the in uh, against Donegal the second day out uh, excellent um but but that opening day against against Donegal there were weaknesses there and listening to to Tony Scullion and then to Gormley and Brendan Devaney last night up at Mahara like they spoke about how the goalkeeping position we know is is so massive in Gaelic football but I feel like in this game uh, with all the focus and, and talk there has been around Ethan Rafferty um, and, and what he brings out, out the pitch as well and on Conor Gleeson uh, that the goalkeeping position in this game could be a, a massive factor here as well Big time Shane yeah um, I do think both teams are going to employ presses at various stages I don't think any of them are as good as Dublin, Mayo and Kerry are employing presses because they can absolutely destroy you with a press like all you need is one kick out to go wrong and it's a goal against you and it can absolutely rattle you look what happened to Donegal with Patton's two kick outs you know it wasn't all Patton's fault but the whole game changed in that three or four minute spell so kick outs are going to be massive um, but uh, like on the flip side I have no idea what Armagh are going to do with Shane Walsh maybe they're going to do what Kevin Walsh said and go zonal and maybe double up or, or put two people on him but the matchup that I'm sure is going to happen and it's going to be one well worth watching is Kelly on Reno Neal one of the things that uh, we need to factor in, lads, for Sunday is that Sunday could be an absolute washout. Like I, The conditions are not going to be good. This is not going to be summer football. When you talk about uh, Kerry Mayo uh, in the league in Chile, that might actually be uh, the, the the real sort of thing to, to look towards because it could be similar enough conditions. We've seen games in the rain famously in, in a quarterfinal stage as well. So um, mm. that could be uh, another factor that, that will, I, I guess, uh, inform some of our predictions. So that's... Um, you're our Mad Galway matchup, Tommy. Are, yes. Are we? Where's your next one? Uh, my next one is David Clifford. Hmm. Now, let's not get into the argument or the the speculation of whether he's going to start or not. If he starts, what are Mayo going to do with him? Brady yesterday was saying Keegan. Yeah, and and a sweeper. It sounded like Keegan on a sweeper. I think I go for a whore on a sweeper. I think, okay. I, I think I put a horror in there again. Um, I you think, wouldn't do that to a horror. Per Per Podrick, you can't do that to him again. He's no. already had the worst day of his life in the league final. 
I, I don't know, Shane. I think he'd love that. I think I think there's only so much you can do with David Clifford. I really do. I think, you know, we've mentioned it all before. He had one of the all-time great semi-final performances against Ronan McNamee. And McNamee did a brilliant job on him. McNamee and the Toronto defence. Clifford still kicks eight points. Um, and, you know, probably would have won that game for Kerry if he hadn't been given a, a hospital pass that Morgan ended up cleaning him out of it and he went off injured. I think they'll stick a horror on him because... You want Keegan going forward and kicking points. You want, uh, you know, Mullen breaking forward. I think Mullen's a match for Shawnee O'Shea. But I just think Clifford, regardless of he's 75%, 80%, 100%, 110% ready to go, you just got to have a plan for him. And I think putting Padraig Horan on him, making sure he doesn't score a goal, I think that is the best thing that Mayo can do. And I think it's obviously doubling up. I think they're going to play an extra man, an extra, extra man that's going to drop um, and facilitate their wing backs to attack. So I think we might see James O'Donoghue who suggested Stephen Cohen at 12, Aidan O'Shea at 11, and the two of them dropping. I think, I don't know if they can do both of those. I think uh, Gavin White has to be stopped. Brian O'Bugley has to be stopped. So, you know, I think we'll have one lad dropping. So I think Aidan O'Shea could end up in the full forward line and Cohen could end up in the half forward line. Um, but that's the key matchup. I, I just thought, it's hard to know what they're going to do. Um, Keegan... You know, it's a good shout. I'm sure he'd take it on, take on the task, and he'd do it exceptionally well. But I just think put a whore on him and free Keegan up a little bit on the other side. Anything else that's uh, sticking out matchups wise, Tommy, this weekend? I think Derry Clare is going to be a really, really interesting game. And I think I tried to make the case in the pod, the lads didn't necessarily agree with me, that I think not that Derry are going to choke in Crow Park. So don't quote me on that. And do remember that I called Derry to beat Tyrone. I do think it's a different story playing in Crow Park, Championship Football in Crow Park. Clare have it in the bones. That's going to be a help for them. Like Chris McKay and Brendan Rogers have done a sensational job on every single one of the um, opposition's best forwards the last two days out. So naturally, you'd be expecting McKay to take Sexton and Rogers to take Cleary. I think that Rogers Cleary battle is going to be huge. Owen Cleary has been essentially Claire's marquee forward for the last couple of years. I don't think we've seen the best of him this year, and we might see a breakout performance in Croker on Sunday. I think this game is going to be tight, tetchy going to go down to the wire Just I think Cleary Rogers is going to swing it we, we will get your uh, quick pick predictions tomorrow as well uh, just okay. quickly on um, Footballer of the Year Tommy where like, where are you back? Where are you betting right now if you're looking at Footballer of the Year stakes and you look at this, this quarterfinal draw which is a little bit lopsided well, I'm not going to bet it so I'll put it to you that way but we were having a chat yesterday Owen and you made the point of where O'Neill and Walsh are in the odds and I think you got to be looking at one of them because one of those lads are going to inspire their team to an All-Ireland final and then it's about how they perform in that All-Ireland final and I think if Rian O'Neill or Shane Walsh is going up against a a Dublin defence or a Kerry defence I still think they're playing well regardless if their team wins or not so I think that's a good shout um, it's hard to look beyond Conor Cannon as well and that's the other interesting thing this weekend I really think Cork and Crow Park you know as much as Derry are going to find it difficult I think Cork are going to find it very difficult in Crow Park and what they do with Conor Cannon is going to be fascinating because by all accounts Cork have done a really good job on David Clifford whenever they've needed to but Sean Meehan who marked him in 21 there's talk that he might be back in the 26 uh, Cork's co-captain done with a hamstring injury Kevin Flahab did really well in Parky mm-hmm. Rin he's out injured so I don't know whether they, they double up with Powder and someone else on, on Khan this weekend, but that's going to be really interesting to watch too. It's hard to look beyond Khan being the banker for Football Radio. What do you reckon? Well, David Clifford's still favourite at 5-2, but obviously there's so many question marks about whether or not he plays. There are a maximum of three games left. 
So yeah. if you're missing a game against Mayo and yeah. uh, there's a chance that you lose that game as well, I'm not sure that that's actually uh, such a such a sure thing anymore. Like I, I think the like we, we did make, the, make this point last week is that once that draw came out, Reno Neal and Shane Walsh looked very very good on the uh, the non Kerry Dublin Mayo side of the draw. Uh, like because there's a good chance to get to the final and we have seen over the last couple of years that losing finalists have picked up the gong like whether it's Lee Keegan or Andy Moore and Austin Gleeson in the hurling but I just wonder this year if Dublin go all the way will the people who vote for the All-Stars be rejuvenated by Dublin again and it'll feel exciting to give it to one of the dubs you know we kind of got into a, a, a stasis there for a while where it was like Luxon yeah. didn't even pick up All-Stars because their excellence was just boring and uh, they, it felt like they weren't overachieving in any way even though they possibly were and they, there were no awards handed out for what Dublin did which which is kind of bonkers when you look back at it whereas I think there will be awards handed out if Dublin win the All-Ireland this year and I think that'll include the Footballer of the Year I think Kerry if they win an All-Ireland will take a Footballer of the year with them and Mayo will unquestionably win a footballer of the year if they win the All-Ireland because they will probably get 15 All-Stars if they win the All-Irelands if they've managed to pick up two and footballers r- of the year while uh, losing All-Irelands I won't say rightly so but they'll, they'll probably get 10 uh, like we are ruling out Derry now so like if Derry were to get to an All-Ireland final if Derry were to get by Clare if Derry were to get to you know through an Armour that's harder to call isn't it? it well I think Brendan Rodgers is probably going to be the key man there do you know Rogers the it, job he did on yeah Murphy in it was the all McKinless up until the final though McKinless was the guy who McKinless was McKinless the first day was absolutely sensational so yeah. yeah you have a point it is hard to call but I think Rogers if they do get there Rogers is going to be key all the way through Tommy it's an excellent football pod this week congratulations on that uh, Tommy Rooney and oh. Paddy Andrews talking up Kerry this week as James no. who tries to talk them off that uh, mountain in fairness I'm the only one doing your work on I've been Thank talking you. up Mayo for the last couple of weeks I do think that they're going to give them a rattle I, I think it's going to be good for Kerry you know, yeah, and all that. Tommy Rooney, good stuff. Slam. Shifty lads been in touch to say, remember a few years ago, Mayo stumbled over London and made a final. Good morning, everyone. And <laughs> I think that that's very true. It's the 2017 season uh, and 2016 season in particular. They're they the two years that you look at for a reference point for, for Mayo coming through the back door where they were unimpressive, especially in 17 in, in the qualifiers and were very, very impressive then once they, they hit Croke Park. Uh, Dublin's first city says Keegan will be wasted a cornerback in Clifford, let him do what he does best at attacking from the halfback line. A dirty rainy day will be a leveller for sure. I think Keegan can still do that job going forward while marking David Clifford potentially. You would need a sweeper, you would need somebody to come back and, and cover when he makes those marauding runs though, which maybe complicates things. Comco Productions, uh, wondering about the dairy forwards as we mentioned earlier on um, I think this is uh, a situation Shane where everybody's expecting Mayo to, to to try and show something because they've done it in the past but nobody can be fully sure what exactly they are going to show Yeah it's funny Shifty lad mentioning <laughs> mentioning that year Mayo uh, stumbled past London like and like I talk, I talked earlier about about their performance against Monaghan and Kildare not being all that all that uh, and nothing to really concern Kerry but you cannot talk about Mayo and just count them out in any game. And and it's funny because while they haven't been impressive this year, Mayo, and they ha- they are not Connacht champions, and Kerry are so dominant in everyone's heads and they're the league champions, we're still not ruling Mayo out. And that kind of sums up where everyone's at on Mayo. Like on, on the Footballer of the Year, Owen, I'm, I'm going to give everyone my 150 to one shot, Benny Heron. Um bit of a legend up in Derry um, and has been he's been an integral role he's like in a quiet sense he's been he's been key in a lot of those big games he was excellent against Monaghan that day he was unbelievable against Tyrone uh, when they turned them over massively uh, so like I just think if Derry can get to an All-Ireland final and I'm certainly not ruling that out probably uh, people might have the likes of Chrissy McCaig and Brendan Rodgers and Shane McGuigan and even Gareth McInnes that you mentioned ahead of them in the in the stakes but uh, 
Benny Heron at 150 to one. That's a that's a that's a sneaky one if Derry get to an, to an All Ireland final and uh, go on to potentially lift Sam Maguire for the first time since 1983. This will 100% be something that will be clipped if that actually comes true. That is an audacious <laughs> shout from Shane Hannan this morning. Right, it is uh, 8:58 here with us here on OTBAM, and we are turning our attention uh, to Liverpool and the events over. A pretty busy early stage today, transfer window, I think it's fair to say, for, for Liverpool FC. We've got Harriet Pryor of the Anfield Wrap on the line. Harriet, good morning to you. Thanks, Millie, for taking the call. Morning, thanks for having me on. So Sadio Mane to Bayern Munich. First things first, as a Liverpool fan group, this must be heartbreaking. This like must just be a really sad moment to say goodbye to Sadio Mane. Yeah, I think we've known it's coming for a few weeks. It was building after the Champions League final and even the rumours started before that. But now that it's official and, and we know that he has gone to Bayern Munich and seeing him in a Bayern Munich shirt yesterday was a very strange feeling. So it's, it's definitely a lot of sadness. But look, he was a Liverpool legend. He was with us for six seasons. We've got so many good memories from him. He, he contributed to all our success over the last few seasons under Jurgen Klopp. So if he wants a new challenge, we have to let him go on and we wish him well. And he'll always be a legend in our eyes, but it's definitely a a lot of sadness to yesterday and today. It's probably a bit of a premature conversation to be having, but the Mane Firmino Salah front line is obviously going to go down as one of the, one of the most beloved in, in Anfield history. So when you compare that to even attacking duos in the club's history, where do you think they rank the three of them? Yeah, definitely. I think I think the trio of them, you have to say, is one of the best attacking options that Liverpool has ever had. And if you look at some of the goals are scored, the combinations, the way that they worked with each other, it's just unbelievable. And it does feel a bit now like an end of an era, one of them leaving. I, I think there was always a sense of inevitability that one of them would stay on and one of them would get a new contract, one of them would leave on a free maybe, and then one of them we'd sell. It, it seems like Mane is the one that we, we've sold. I think Firmino will stay on a little bit longer. Salah's obviously committed to being there next season and then we'll see what happens. Happens, but this certainly feels like the start of a of a clock 2.0, I like to call it. But you you have to think that they are one of the best attacking forces that the Premier League has ever seen. They were electric together, and Bobby Firmino in his prime as well. I, I was one of my favourite players, and but Mane for me he had such a incredible season last year and that's why I think it's so sad that we've had to let him go because he was really reinvigorated with the arrival of Diaz moving into the middle he was such a great option and, and really dragged us through some difficult games so the first piece of the jigsaw leaving is always going to be tough but we have got new people coming in and hopefully they slot right in and replace him. Harry it probably highlights how, how important it is uh, how 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 well Liverpool are playing in that players, when they leave, leave with, with gratitude and in a nice cloud. There's no cloud of negativity. Like, for example, Paul Pogba leaving Manchester United. Like, when you see Sadio Mane talking about, you know, texting his teammates and texting Jurgen Klopp, and, and even the, the words I have in front of me here from, from Klopp talking about Sadio Mane being one of Liverpool's greatest ever players, he says he leaves with our gratitude and our love. Like, just how important is it to end uh, on a note like this for Sadio Mane? Well, it's really important. I think if you look over the last few years, Klopp has really built this culture now that if a player says, right, it's my time, I want a new challenge, I want to move on, there's no real pushback. I think Klopp will have quiet conversations with them about what they see in their future. But if they decide it's their time to go, there's no fight with the player. There's no real sense of, no, you must stay because Klopp knows that if they want to go, then they need to be able to to go on and move on because there's no point playing at Liverpool if their heart's not in it. And I think that's why they've built a, a culture now where there is a level of acceptance 
acceptance that when a player does move on, they can move on with the best wishes and, and, and still as a Liverpool legend. But it also comes down to how the player conducts themselves. And yes, Sadio Mane made a few comments in the last few weeks about, about leaving Liverpool that maybe didn't, didn't sit the best with the fan base. But I do think he went about it for the most part in a good way and he did it in the right way. And, and also, he's had some of the best years of his career at Liverpool. You know, he's 30 now. I think you can safely say he's had the peak of his career at Liverpool. So we can't begrudge him for, for being 30 and wanting to move on. So it's really important that these players leave with our best wishes and, and that they can come back and be welcome back to Anfield and Liverpool whenever that may be. Like Owen mentioned there, like where maybe Mane's, uh, I guess, strike partnership with, with Salah and Firmino ranks in terms of the greatest in, in, in Liverpool's sense. Um, I, I, unquestionably, Mane, and when you hear those quotes from Klopp talking about being one of the club's greatest ever players, like where do you feel he ranks in terms of the club's greatest ever number 10s? Like I'm thinking of people like Michael Owen and, and John Barnes and John Toshak, probably of previous vintages as well. But in terms of number 10s at the club, how, where do you think he ranks overall? I think probably it's recency bias to me and I'm a bit young to remember some of the people having watched play, you know, John Bars and all of that. But but Sadio Mane for me ranks as a, up there with one of the greatest. And you only have to look at the amount of goals he scored on that on that Liverpool list of all-time greatest scorers. And he's right up there. And, and I think that's, you know, I don't think for a lot of people it's really sunk in just the player we're losing. And, and yes, we've got new people coming in, which has kind of distracts us a bit. But I think we sort of need to realise that we are losing one of the greatest number 10s the club has ever had. Maybe maybe the greatest you know he's such an incredible player I, I think maybe he's felt like he's been in the shadows of Salah a little bit and that's what one of the reasons he's wanted to move on he feels he wants to go and be the star at Bayern Munich and he deserves that because like you mentioned he is one of the best and he'll go down as one of the best but there was never a question of underappreciation at Liverpool and I know that's what some people have said he that he hopefully he's appreciated by Munich he was so appreciated at Liverpool we knew how good he was we didn't want him to leave we didn't want him to move on so he will always be remembered as one of the greatest and, and he was always sort of that while he was here as well. What's really interesting now is, is what happens next in that attack because obviously Luis Diaz has come in and has just been absolutely sensational and I think there's this automatic expectation that Darwin Nunez is going to do something similar and what's going to be the fascinating part of it is how Klopp actually uses that constellation of stars once again because I think as you mentioned there Harriet Mane in the central position was such a not a revel- revelation is probably putting it is probably a bit of a stretch but he was excellent in that position at the end of the season so what they do in, in that middle role whether it's Jota who gets it who's playing on, on the left hand side with Salah on the right is probably Klopp's biggest question right now right? Yeah, it will be. I think when you look across the players we have in our forward line, what a lot of them have is that versatility and flexibility that they can play right across the line. So we've seen that with, with Mane this season, like you mentioned, but we've also seen it with Jota and with Diaz as well. I think he can play across the front line. He, he's best suited on the left, but we'll probably see the new player Darwin Nunes go into that central role. I think that's why he's been brought in because we maybe even with Sadio Mane playing there, we've maybe lacked a central figure in, in the middle of the park in the attacking sense. So I think that bringing in a player like Nunes, who's a bit, a bit more of an out and out number nine, although he's not a, a total pure striker will give us that central point. So I think you'll see him going through the middle and, and Salah on the right and then Diaz on the left. And, and like you mentioned, Diaz has slotted in incredibly quickly. So we can only hope that with the new signing, that that's the same. It, it felt 
I'm not, I'm not sure about what you think, but it felt maybe that Klopp had kind of flirted with the idea of getting four attackers on the pitch for a while before, you know, ditching it. And obviously the 4-3-3 has been just so successful for Liverpool. So, so why would you change it? But it, it does feel that the parts are in place now for Klopp to maybe revisit a situation where you get four attackers on the pitch for some games next season, just to try and add a bit more of an element of surprise in some of the bigger games potentially next season. Well, definitely. And we actually did see that in a few games last season when, when teams set out with a low block and it was really hard to get past them that, that Klopp would overload the attack and he'd bring on that extra attacking force and we'd change the formation slightly away from the 4-3-3, which we know that Klopp likes to play. So I think bringing in a, a player like Nunez does give us that option to occasionally change it and have that, that one up front. I do think we'll still play the 4-3-3 in the majority of the games. It will be a situation for me where mid-game, if he feels like he needs it and we need an extra attacker on the pitch, he'll change that formation. So I do still think he'll try and adapt the the new players to the 4-3-3 system. But like you mentioned, it gives us that that other option. It gives us that other surprise because sometimes you can feel like the Premier League defenders are starting to work out how to play against us. I think I saw that with a few times, uh, a few teams last season. So it gives us that extra option to be able to do that and and use that in games where it's necessary definitely and Carlo Ancelotti basically said as much as well after the Champions League final he said it helped that Liverpool were easier to decipher than the other teams because they have a very clear identity and we could prepare the way that we did we knew what strategy to take and uh, I guess the fact that they have a clear identity is not something you're ever going to criticise somebody for but maybe Carlo Ancelotti's comments is something that Klopp region is like alright screw you we're going to we're gonna come up with something a little bit different next season and, and it's not a, a whole overhaul of the system it's just a wild card in the back pocket for those big situations like a Real Madrid again yeah, definitely. And like you mentioned, the fact that we have a clear identity, no one can ever begrudge that because that's what's made us so successful for, for quite a few seasons now. However, there is an element of, of teams playing up against us, especially those top teams like like Real Madrid, who can come and think, OK, we know the system they're going to play. We broadly speaking know the players that are going to be in the, the starting eleven. This is how we're going to set up against them. You, you now next season have that different proposition, especially for the first half of the season where you don't know what formation we're going to play. You don't know exactly which players are going to be in it, how they're going to combine, how they're going to work together. So it is that that element of surprise here, definitely, that you just mentioned that I think we need and, and look, we don't know who else is going to come in over the, the summer transfer window, that the noises is that's it, that Liverpool aren't going to bring in any more players. We'll see We'll see about that. But we've, we've also got some really good young talent coming through and I think we'll see a few more of them next season as well. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and the young acquisition as well in Fabio Carvalho. Like, is he somebody that you expect to play in that front three and, and make an immediate impact next season. Yeah, you know, he's interesting because there's been a lot of conversations around him and where he's going to sit and where he's going to fit. There's been talks that he might be played in midfield. He's obviously a very young player still, but we have seen Klopp with players like Harvey Elliott slot them straight into that midfield. For me, he'll probably be another attacking option, but we'll wait and see how Klopp envisages him and, and where he wants to use him. But again, bringing a player in who can play in lots of different positions is, is such a Klopp attribute. So I think it'll be interesting to see where he's used. I'm not sure how much we'll see him next season, considering he is he is very young and he still does have a lot of development. The, the same with the new fullback, Ramsey, coming mm. in as well. But it will be interesting to see how they're used and in what positions they're used as well. Yeah, it kind of feels like that, that was the, the one 
weakness that you could point towards in Liverpool's squad was, you know, if Trent gets injured, who's coming in? And I guess they've, well, we'll, see, we'll see what Ramsey does when he plays for Liverpool, but they've gone some way to fixing that. Obviously, signing an attacker, a top class attacker for one leaving is one way of fixing it. And they've added Fabio Carvalho. Like, is there any other area of that squad, Harriet, from last season that you're looking at and you're thinking, God, I'd love just an extra player there? Because you said that the transfer window might be done for Liverpool now. Do you think that they could potentially get a, another player or two that would make you feel, sit a little easier going into the new season? Yeah, I would personally like to see one more body in midfield. I know that okay. people have very differing opinions on that. Some people think that the, the talent we have in midfield is enough. However, there are a few players in there for me that have question marks over their fitness, how how long, how many games a season they can play. And even the, game, even the players that you'd say are our uh, favourite uh, middle three, Thiago, Fabinho, Henderson, some of them pick up niggling injuries. Some of them, you know, have slightly off moments at times. So you want to have that fourth really for me you know Naby Keita as well we don't know if he's going to stay this season it looks like he will another midfield option would be really nice but we are being quite spoiled aren't we with that so I think that there won't be another midfielder brought in it if you're going to ask me now obviously things might change but as it stands I think we are going to keep Oxlade-Chamberlain if he decides to go we'll probably bring another midfielder in and I don't think that would be any a, a bad thing because I think another body in that area would be would be beneficial. Harriet, just a, just a random one for you. Just a, something that has caught my eye on, in some of the headlines in the English newspapers over the last week or two, I guess, has been uh, the, the the headlines around Jack Grealish partying uh, in Las Vegas and Ibiza and wherever else he's been since Man City won the league. Um, and and like I know there probably weren't these headlines when young English players like like Trent Alexander Arnold were celebrating winning you know league titles or Champions Leagues with with Liverpool. Um, but like even some comments from Stan Collymore over the last couple of days saying he feels Jurgen Klopp will have dodged a bullet by not signing uh, Jack Grealish based on his behaviour since, which which I thought was extraordinarily harsh. Like what's as someone who's working in the in, in the in the media uh, over there, like what what's your take on all these headlines and negative press around around young English stars that seem to crop up every now and again? Oh, look, Jack Grealish is always going to have a bit of a target on his back because he has been known to be a bit of a party boy. And I think there were certain situations during the, the pandemic, if I remember rightly as well, that probably didn't help that. But they're young footballers. He's just won the league. I, I think he's very much entitled to go on holiday to Ibiza and have a, have a good time. I don't see any problem with it personally, but the media will always try, I, I think, and, and get these moments and catch these players out. But yeah, it does seem to happen to, to young English talent. But Grealish is, I think he's such a popular figure within England and you know that move to Man City was so so widely talked about and the press were all over it so I think he's going to have an extra extra tiger on his back and extra eyes on him because of the nature of how how popular and how famous he is but uh, yeah I think he's just won the league I think they're all entitled to go and have a good time in the summer season and it's been a long season and there's going to be another very long season to come so I I don't personally see too much issue with it but that's a a conversation that the clubs have to have internally and I'm sure that the manager has had with him internally as well so I think the the media probably want to make a a bigger story than when when he's actually just having a good time in Ibiza. Just one last thing I wanted to ask you before we let you go and I dare say this might be a conversation that will be rinsed and repeated for the next 12 months and it is around Mo Salah. And just the, the angle I wanted to take on this is that in The Athletic, Daniel Taylor had a piece kind of going through the fact that top six clubs are sharing talent a lot more at the moment given the concentration of wealth within those clubs and away from some of the clubs outside of the Premier League that he says that the last time Manchester City allowed a prominent player to join another big six club other than on a free transfer it was 10 years ago 
however this summer it could conceivably happen twice you could have Sterling going to, to Chelsea you could have Gabriel Jesus going to Tottenham or to Arsenal uh, he finishes that piece by talking about Mo Salah and about his desire to remain in English football next season this sort of from a Liverpool standpoint anyway this, this grim possibility of Mo Salah leaving Liverpool going to another Premier League rival have you considered that at all is there any part of your brain that, that's allowing itself to, to go there and, and think that this might actually happen yeah, I read that piece. It is really interesting. The after effects of the pandemic and the financial situations of clubs might mean they are forced to, to sell to rivals in the Premier League. Do I think that would happen with Mo Salah? Uh, to be honest, no. I think Liverpool will do everything in their power to stop that happening because I think it would break all of our hearts to see Mo Salah at Man City, but I, I also just don't think it would be good business. And if there's one thing Liverpool do in the transfer market, it's good business. So I, I don't think there'll be there'll be a, a situation where you, you see Mo Salah going to Man City and maybe I'll regret that next year but we'll see but I don't know if the player it would be even right for the player if he would want to do that I think he knows that he wants to play in the Premier League but he knows that he wants that to be with Liverpool and I still think a resolution will will be made and and something will happen and maybe not in the immediate future but at some point before next summer so Not too worried about that at the moment, but it is it is an interesting one that there does seem to be more movement around the top six teams, and and you know we've seen it in the past with players like Torres. That's Liverpool haven't always shut themselves off to things like that, but I don't think with with Salah it will be a reality. Okay, very interesting, uh, Harriet. Thanks so much for your time this morning. Cheers. Thank you for having me on. Bye. That's Harriet Pryor of the Anfield Wrap chatting all things Liverpool. Uh, it is 9.14. You're with us here on OTBAM, which is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. And here's what we've got coming up on OTB Sports Radio over the next little while. OTB Gold is an interview with Cora Staunton from 1 o'clock. Leaders Questions with Stuart Lancaster from 3 o'clock. Our retro panel is LGBT Community and Sport from 4 o'clock. And then 6 o'clock is Brian O'Driscoll in conversation with Ezen Asewa. 7 o'clock is when Off The Ball is live on your radio as ever and then it is Thursday night so Nathan will be in the hot seat there you can follow Off The Ball across all our social channels you can subscribe to our YouTube channel and be sure to download the OTB Sports app for the latest and best in sports content and analysis we're going to be back after the break with Formula 1 journalist and broadcaster Chris Medlins chat to you in a few OTB AM you're welcome back it is 16 minutes past 9 we are turning our attention to Formula 1 and uh, this time next week we'll be looking ahead to Silverstone Formula 1 journalist and broadcaster Pastor Chris Medland is with us on the line to chat about the, a couple of the very, very interesting storylines that have popped up over the last little while. Uh, Chris, thanks a million for taking the call. How are you getting on? No worries. Yeah, it seems very early to me because I came back from Canada about 36 hours ago. So I heard you say <laughs> nine something. So I was like, that shouldn't seem so early, but it does. <laughs> uh, next week, I dare say, is going to be uh, pretty interesting given... It's Silverstone week and just kind of looking through some of the, the headlines at the moment, it feels like the British media and the British motorsport voices are quite vocal at the moment when it comes to Lewis Hamilton in particular. And we've spoken on the show quite a bit over the last little while about Lewis Hamilton and, and the, the pain that he's going through in particular this season. You've got a, a couple of different perspectives on this. You've got David Coulthard who said that those that are struggling more are of course going to be more vocal than those that are getting results. Uh, I've been in the situation where I've had the advantage of my team doing a better job and I've been on the other side when the team hasn't done such a good job you take the pain whether it's through your lower back what I would say is that if any driver feels uncomfortable step aside uh, and then on the other side of things you've got Jackie Stewart who says it's uh, it's time for him to resign Lewis Hamilton that is he's got music he's got culture he loves clothing and the rag trade would be absolutely suitable for him 
Is this a little bit of an overreaction, Chris, or do we think that Jackie Stewart could potentially be onto something here that Lewis Hamilton is, is absolutely weighing up what he might do with his immediate future? No, it's definitely an overreaction. I mean, um, I respect Jackie a lot, but he has come up with some pretty uh, strong comments before about <laughs> Lewis and what he should or shouldn't do. And um, I think Lewis has always made pretty good calls with his career with the way it's, it's uh, panned out so far. I mean, this is the first really tough season he's had in, what, a decade nearly? So I think it's understandable that his reaction's been a bit uh, getting used to it, not being in a race-winning car, in an uncomfortable car. Uh, and he's been doing a lot of experiments, trying to find ways of improving that car. And Canada was the perfect example. Friday, he did some experiments car was awful he said so he was in a terrible mood friday night but because of those experiments they made a load of changes by the race on sunday and he was far more competitive and finished third and said he felt like a kid again and and was absolutely i've never seen him so delighted with a podium you know this is a guy used to winning he has the most wins ever uh, but just a third place was he was just so happy with it so i think we're seeing kind of a different side to lewis at the moment that he's having to fight through at this stage of his career uh, as david coulthard says whether you're in the right boat or the wrong boat in terms of how competitive your car is, you're going to speak differently about things. Uh, that's just natural. Drivers are looking for competitive advantage and they'll do it. So uh, I'm not overly concerned really about Lewis in the long term. I think Mercedes will get things sorted out uh, and I think it won't be long before we're hearing him talking about the great job they've done and, and how they're fighting closer to the front. That, that cool tired sentiment of, you know, just shut up and get on with it. Is that pervasive throughout the sport? Uh, it's... I think it's a quite widely held view in the sense of when a team is struggling and it seems to be one team more than others, then you kind of give credit to the others for doing something more right. Uh, And it's not really on the FIA to have to make changes to then fix a problem of one team's making. It's on that team to fix that problem. And I think Mercedes are good enough and have shown they're good enough and are making progress that uh, they don't really need that intervention. They just need to keep their heads down and and keep working at the issue they've had. Uh, I did see uh, from one team kind of the ride heights of every car in, in Azerbaijan where Lewis had his back problems and according to them the Mercedes was by far the lowest car which meant it was going to have the most problems and uh, that team boss was like well if they came and joined us all in this window where all the other nine teams are they wouldn't have the same pain they wouldn't be so competitive uh, but then that's on them for their car concept so I think there's little sympathy from other teams uh, but Canada also showed shoots of recovery that we'd seen in Barcelona as well which is a similar track to Silverstone so I think the British public will, will have a more competitive Mercedes to see there too. Uh, Chris, like it, it's interesting to see as well um, in Canada, Lewis Hamilton arrest that run of seven defeats, if you want to call it that, to, to George Russell. Like Russell has been Mr. Consistency really for for Mercedes so far this year. I think he still, uh, you know, has that record of being top five in every single race. So for for Lewis to to get one over his teammate when he's so used to you know in the last number of years being dominant uh, over that over uh, Valtteri Bottas. That must mean something to him now that he can maybe kick on from here and 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 kind of use this rivalry with George Russell to his benefit. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a bit of a strange situation in that sense because lots of people were looking forward to this battle between Lewis and George and and how it's going to pan out, and we expected it to be very close, but because Lewis has kind of taken on a bit more of the burden as the more experienced driver, uh, then it has meant that it's backfired a few times and left him a little bit out of position compared to George, who's been brilliantly consistent. I've been so impressed with the way he's not really put a foot wrong. I think his first qualifying session, he tried to overdrive the car a bit like it was a Williams and he needed to put it further up the grid than it needed to be or could be. Uh, And Mercedes said to him, 
him, calm down, you know, you're in a, a better car now, just get the most out of it. That's what we need you to do. And he's done that ever since. He just took that on board and has been excellent. I think we did see a slight turning point, partly because um, of how extreme Hamilton had gone with his setup on the Friday and how that could have really hurt him. But also as George gets more comfortable, he can take on more kind of responsibility and the two of them can then work together to find a sweet spot that should put them both in a better position for a race rather than just one car or the other. So uh, I think we're going to see that rivalry kind of evolve. They do seem to have a very good relationship. I think George really understands that he can learn a lot from Lewis and that he's biding his time. Yeah, this is going well for him now, but also longer term, if he impresses Mercedes, he can take on the leadership role. Uh, And when I did an interview with him in Monaco, it was, he kind of said that I'd take a tough year now with the potential to be in a team that could win six, seven championships in a row than a flash in the pan season where in my first year I win the title, but then we're never near it ever again. So he feels like he's in the best place for his long-term career. And I think that has kind of led to this rivalry not bubbling over so much um, because they're both at different stages and they know it. It's funny, like I'm, I'm looking here, Chris, at the list of, of races to come, uh, four races between now and the mid-season break. So you've got, as, as Owen mentioned, Silverstone coming up. We have Austria, we have France, and we have uh, Hungary as well. Uh, like we know Lewis Hamilton has that extremely impeccable record in, in Silverstone eight, eight wins there in all like if you look at those those tracks Silverstone Austria and France uh, specifically like you see a lot of people in, in an engineering sense online talking about these fast sweeping corners on those tracks the the smooth wide tracks as well that might suit Mercedes a little bit more without you would hope that the porpoising issue that has been uh, dogging them of late so do you see that the next three or four races before this mid-season um, finale or uh, break as quite important for Mercedes? Oh, yeah, certainly very important just to give them a bit of hope in terms of that they are making progress with their concept and that this season's not a complete write-off because don't forget, being the first year of a new set of regulations, the cards that all the teams have now, they're going to want to evolve and develop. And if Mercedes need to suddenly go, actually, we've got it wrong this year, they need to restart and come up with a whole brand new car concept for next season, which is a lot of work, a lot of expense under a budget cap. Um, So that would be a kind of admission of defeat that they don't want to ever have to go through. But I do think Silverstone will suit them more. I think France... Uh, specifically will be better than either Austria or Hungary. Uh, Austria kind of middle ground, I think, and that will actually suit some other teams quite well as well. I mean, the likes of Alpine might be very strong there, who were strong in Canada. So um, I think that might, you know, I don't think Austria is one where we can expect a brilliant result from them. In fact, Mercedes have struggled there in the past with previous cars, but yeah, two of the next three, I think, could be really good opportunities. And uh, what we saw in Spain, which was the last uh, track that was similar to Silverstone was a real step forward for Mercedes. I mean, we went into qualifying thinking they might be in the mix of pole and they were slightly off it, but they were they were much closer to the top two. So if they've continued that improvement and we just haven't seen it in the last few races because of the sort of circuits we've been to, Monaco, Baku and, and Canada all being quite unique and semi-permanent or street circuits, then it could be another step forward again in Silverstone. So yeah, really, really important to show that at the very least they haven't slipped any further back from Red Bull and Ferrari on this sort of track. Just struck me there, Chris, when you're talking about uh, time zones and uh, still being on, on Canada time in all respects. Like, at times, you're probably glad as well to have this two-week break, and I'm sure everyone who works in Formula One is glad to have those little two-week breaks, uh, say, for example, between Montreal and Silverstone um, at the moment. What, what, like, what's that like at, at times? Because I know it, like, for, the, for the engineers and for the teams themselves, obviously it's a lot of packing up gear, transporting things across the world. For people like yourself and, and journalists covering the races, you know, it's, it's stressful too and it's a lot of, lot of time spent in hotels and airplanes. Like, what's it like uh, for yourself um, being part of this travelling circus that is Formula One and, and trying to deal with these time zones and, and life on the road? 
I'll admit it's really full on. Um, I, the last standalone race, as in just one race that wasn't a back-to-back, was Miami. So since Miami, every race for the rest of the season is either two in a row or three in a row, uh, which means you are hopping time zones quickly. We went from Baku to Canada, which meant one night in London on the way there. But your, your time zone swing there was about eight or nine hours, I think, between the two venues. Uh, and then coming back the same. So you just about get on to Canadian time and then you lose it coming back. Uh, most of F1 was delayed on flights as well, which are out their hands. But um, there's a lot of issues with flights coming home. So lots of people got back very late, very tired. As you say, for the teams, they go into their factories, they're working. They're trying to improve the cars. They're trying to prepare for the next race. Um, sort of the PR teams are certainly with Silverstone. For most of them, it's the home race. They're doing lots of activations. Yeah, we don't stop working as journalists either. You kind of, you try and kick yourself back onto the time zone as quickly as you can. You're writing a lot. You're doing media appearances. Um, you're talking about the fallout from the last race. You're previewing the next one. You're doing interviews. Uh, so we've got from Monday, you're at McLaren for a preview event. Uh, Tuesday at Red Bull for a preview event. Wednesday, there's an event in London. So you're still traveling around um, and gathering things and doing interviews. You're just not doing it at a race venue. And then from Thursday, you're at Silverstone. So it doesn't really stop. You try and just take the, the Saturday, Sunday, if you can, uh, like anyone else gets a normal weekend, if you can. But um, sometimes that's not possible because news might break or things might happen. So uh, it's quite relentless. But at the same time, you get very caught up in this world when you're traveling around with it. It is like a small traveling circus, a bit of a family. And you know a lot of what's going on. You know what's coming next. And you get into quite a rhythm. So it's only when that rhythm maybe gets away from you a bit that it becomes a real, real struggle. But the rest of the time, it's it's quite fun to be in and you get caught up in it. Um, and you look forward really to the, the summer break, the one you mentioned in four races time, where there's, I think, three weeks, where there's a mandatory shutdown for two weeks for all the teams to try and make sure everyone takes some time off and you try and do it then. It's interesting. Like, is it, is, like when you're in that sort of environment you obviously get into kind of like a routine of the familiar faces of, of the teams and the other media around you is, is is it very much a case where the journalists and those that are actually working on the teams keep their distance or are you sometimes hopping on a transatlantic flight and there's a, an engineer from a certain team sitting beside you Oh yeah, plenty of times yeah. that you end up mixing with teams and other media and, and uh, all sorts, anyone working within the sport really, just because of the nature of the travel and limited flights, limited ability to move around. Um, a lot of people coming out of Canada on uh, Monday night, you know, lots of the teams, I'd say probably 60, 70% of Formula One as a traveling unit was leaving on, on Monday night and delayed coming out of Montreal airport. So everyone's mixing at the airport and sharing tales of woe and then on the planes together. Um, and there were some pretty bad tales of woe, some terrible uh, management from one of the airlines that took people off the flight for no reason. So mm. that's still ongoing. There's people that were there working at that race that are only just getting home now. Um, and, you know, they're turning around to go to the next race very soon. So, um, yeah, you, you do you do mix a lot and, and sometimes share stories. What's interesting there is it's not always how you would find out things or that, you know, kind of news is moving around, but you've all got something in common when you're part of it. So um, it's like a level of mutual respect there between many people, which is um, really cool to see. It just tends to be the top brass and the drivers that try and keep their distance because yeah. they're wary that you're going to try and uh, dig out some news from them. Just to touch on a couple of those teams from from Canada, uh, Chris and, and their performances. Uh, we know now Max Verstappen has this forty six point lead over over his Red Bull teammate Sergio Perez, and then you have Charlotte Claire who who you know really stormed into a into a lead at the start of the season. Uh, probably driver of the day for many people in in Montreal, like up to fifth uh, from a nineteenth uh, start in the grid due to that grid penalty, of course. Carlos Sainz as well on the podium again. I think it was his eleventh career podium, but still without a without a win, which is quite remarkable for a driver of his talent. But like probably a race on a weekend in Canada of what might have been for Ferrari, but they still had the pace and got their pit stops uh, very right. So they weren't that far off for Stappen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, with Sainz, they got their pit stops right. With Leclerc, he did have a delayed one that could have cost him 
at least fourth, maybe even third. He could have been in that mix with Mercedes due to the late safety car. But you're right that actually there was encouraging signs. You know, it was only a week before where both Ferrari drivers retired and it was disaster for the team. Whereas they then went to Canada, the clerk took his grid penalty and limited the damage really well. He was very mature, very calm with his drive, didn't rush anything, was clinical with his overtaking moves uh, and got himself basically the most he was ever going to get out of that result. But also now he has a fresh engine in there that should, Mattia Bonotto, the team principal, has said it should let him attack the next four races before the summer break, which is kind of exciting in that he needs to, you know, with the gap that you guys have just mentioned, 49 points to max, he needs to be taking points off him in the next four races, at least over that spell. It doesn't have to be at every race, but over that, over those four races, he needs to close that gap somewhat. Um, I think we saw a different side of Max, actually, in the fight with Carlos in the race. Uh, Carlos definitely had the quicker car, was the quicker package, just not quite enough to get past. But Max had to be on it every lap, not put a foot wrong. And you really watched that race thinking, He's never going to make a mistake. You really believed that that Carlos was going to have to do something really impressive to get ahead and win the race. I think that shows the level that Max Verstappen operates on, that you don't expect to see him under pressure cracking at any stage. And don't forget, someone like Sebastian Vettel did in Canada back in, it would have been 2011, I think, with Jensen Button on the final lap, um, a race he had under control and he just went a bit wide and, and lost the lead on the final lap. And you just see those little moments sometimes from certain drivers but the very best, just don't make those mistakes. And yeah, Max has shown that he's right at that level. So it was a shame for Carlos not to get his first win, but it did look like it's a bit closer for him because he too didn't really make any mistakes in putting the pressure on. Uh, and he, you know, the, the kind of opportunity didn't overwhelm him. Uh, he looked like he's he's ready to win when the situation allows. So uh, yeah, I think positive signs from, from both teams in that sense. But in the end of the day, it's a, another win for Verstappen and extends his lead even further. Just wanted to touch on Haas with you, Chris, as well. And uh, I think we're all Gunther Steiner fans of the last couple of years. We certainly fell in love with with him and his comments and his uh, his persona. Um, like weekend started off very very well for them. Like both drivers in the top six, the only team in fact with both drivers in the top six locked out that third row of the grid. Obviously, didn't go to plan in the race. Last of the seventeen finishers and one of the non-finishers as well, as as it uh, turned out. But some really interesting comments I thought from from Kevin Magnussen um, after this race, Chris. So he was talking about, uh, you know, obviously starting in fifth in the grid, and then his his prospects really went out the window with this minor front wing end plate damage. Uh, so the opening lap, this happened, and then he's instructed by race control to pit for repairs. But the comments from Kevin afterwards, and I have them in front of me here. So he says, the front wing was safe. It was not broken off. Think back to Jeddah last year. Lewis Hamilton won the race with half a front wing, which I think is correct. You know, let us race if we can. Feels like suddenly very different. Monaco, they don't start us because it starts drizzling. Here I'm called in because I have a scratch on my front wing. He's almost hinting at maybe different treatment between uh, the top teams and the likes of Mercedes and Red Bull and treatment of, of himself and his teammate at Haas, Mick Schumacher. Like, is there anything in that? Is he, is he clutching at straws or do you think there is something there? I think it would be interesting to see what would happen if it was one of the top three teams and it would have ruined the, the fight at the front for a win. Uh, I, I can see where his logic comes from that, uh, mainly because we haven't had that same scenario this year. But I think his wider point is that um, the FIA were being overly cautious about certain things. And while safety has got to be very important, you've got to think of there's still a risk reward balance. And it was things like Monaco. I agreed with him. There was uh, rain potentially coming and it turned out to be heavy rain for a spell, but they waited 
and delayed to start the race and waited just to see if it was going to rain heavily. And it's like, well, if we're going to wait on the weather, potentially doing something, we'll never go racing ever. There's always a chance that, you know, at some stage it might rain. So let's just pack up that we sometimes need to just get on with it and respond to the conditions, you know, uh, be aware of them and kind of react as they develop. But um, I, yeah, I think there was maybe some overcautiousness in Monaco. And I think that's what he's getting at, that that's continued from what he's seen and that we've then seen the same with his front wing issue which I do think was unfair on him and that, that did drop him right out of the running and that's why he didn't score uh, Mick Schumacher as well was yeah, his pace wasn't great and he was slipping back a bit before he had a, what was a suspected engine problem which shows that Ferrari still had some issues uh, so then he had to retire as well and he's not had any luck trying to get his first points he's had quite a few issues but um, yeah Haas have been looking quite strong um, they just haven't had things fall their way, sometimes through their own errors, sometimes through luck or things outside of their control. Uh, and what was really interesting, actually, about something else Kevin said was he'd been talking to Esteban Ocon in the uh, sort of TV pen after the race. And it was Ocon who came over team radio. He was told by his team that Magnussen had a damaged front wing. And Ocon responded, like, saying, yeah, it looks really bad. It's a really big piece. It could fly off in the face. And then after the race, he went up to Kevin and was like, oh, I was the one who got you they had to have to pit. I was the one who told them it was really, really bad and they have to pit you. And Kevin wasn't angry at Ocon for this. He said, fair play. If you know that those messages are going to get through to race control and gain your position, you're going to do that. But race control shouldn't be that easily influenced by these sorts of comments that are clearly a little bit biased. And that throws back all the way to when we said about Mercedes and their car issues. Like each team and driver, depending on how, how it affects them, are going to respond differently just to try and get their competitive advantage. So, um, yeah, I think Magnussen was pretty annoyed with the way the stewards handled that one. And I kind of do side with him. Uh, I think it was a borderline call, but I, I think they they probably were, could have let that one go until at least the first pit stop and kind of said, look, maybe it needs repairing then rather than just completely ruining his race straight away. All right, Chris, uh, enjoy your weekend off. Enjoy getting back onto British summertime. We'll chat to you again soon. Thank you very much. I will do. Cheers, guys. Chris Medlin there on the line chatting Formula 1 Silverstone, of course, uh, next week. So we'll have some build-up to that on the show as well. Uh, OTBAM has been brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. We're back tomorrow from half past seven. Adrian and myself will be in studio. We'll be joined by Derry's Carl McCaig to look ahead to uh, Derry against Clare this weekend. Karen Duggan will look ahead to the Republic of Ireland's World Cup qualifier against Georgia. And we'll have GA quick picks and a crappy quiz for you as well. OTB. A.M. With Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar.